What's happening, weirdos? This is Ezra Klein, journalist, blogger, political commentator, and the co-founder of Vox. He is uh, the editor there uh, and a great guy. I found out that he is a weirdo, and I was excited to have him come on. As you guys know, I'm not uh, super, super political, but obviously this is an interesting political time for everybody, so I thought it would be a good time to have him on. We recorded this uh, a couple weeks ago um, before a certain election, so we're, we're behind. When you listen to this, we're behind. <laughs> so some of the stuff we talk about might be a little bit dated, but in general, it's uh, pretty, pretty uh, evergreen stuff. And fun and very interesting. And I really enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. Uh, I'm going to be in Cleveland this weekend uh, and San Jose, Houston, Phoenix, St. Louis, and Salt Lake City doing stand up uh, with the Silly Silly Fun with as a part of the Silly Silly Fun Boy Tour with Laura Bites. It's incredible. We're also doing a live You Made It Weird at Largo here in Los Angeles on March 18th with Kenny G who's one of the most interesting people in the world, and he's also Kenny G. So that's going to be incredible. I'm so happy to get to spend some time with some weirdos live March 18th. I also, uh, when this drops, I will have just tweeted a two-for-one uh, promo. So you can get two for the price of one to come to see a live You Made It Weird in Los Angeles, if you're nasty. I'll also be doing Largo on uh, the 25th, doing stand-up. Uh, I believe Zach Alfinakis is going to be on that one. It's going to be incredible. It always is. That's Pete Holmes living at Largo on March 25th. And as always, as you guys know, I don't do traditional ads. I only promote things that I actually use and love. One of them is sitting here right now. It's my Alpha Brain from Onnit. Alpha Brain is a nootropic. It is earth-grown ingredients. It is not a stimulant like caffeine. It is basically just nutrients that your brain needs to think to focus, to concentrate, and to create. I love it. For the past four or five years now, I have sworn by Alpha Brain before I write a script, before I do stand-up, certainly before I record this podcast, uh, or even just go out to dinner, or even just have a lazy day at home and want full access to the potential of my brain. I take Alpha Brain. I, I love it. It really, really has made a huge, huge difference in my life, and I always keep it with me in my coat pocket. I have it in my car. I have it in my house. I have it in my office, obviously, here, um, and it is wonderful. The best thing to do is to try it. If you want to give it a try and show your support of this always free podcast, you can go to onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash weird, and you will get 10% off Alpha Brain to help you with memory and focus and creativity, and it also gives you cool dreams if you're into that. It also just helps you get your life going, gets your work done. I swear by it. I love it. Makes a huge difference for me. So give it a try. Onnit.com slash weird. The other one that I am currently pumping full of is Kachava. Kachava is a plant-based superfood drink mix made with the most nutrient-rich exotic superfoods that have been revered by tribal cultures for centuries. A lot of people are curious these days, as they should be, about eating more plant-based food, but so many people don't know where to start. I always point them to Kachava, not only because it is delicious and filling, but because it's actually incredibly tasty. I said delicious! <laughs> what I meant was not just because it's full of nutrients, but because it's actually delicious. There you go. It's 100% plant-based. It's got omega-3s in there. It's got eight 
super fruits in the bag, 17 greens and veggies, 17 greens and veggies. I mean, when I'm traveling and I have a hard time getting produce in my body, cachava is in my carry-on to help me get those greens that I need. There's no gluten, there's no soy, there's no artificial sweeteners or preservatives. It's got powdered coconut milk in there, so it mixes with the water, bless you, Val, and makes it very creamy and chocolate, so it tastes like a chocolate milkshake. You can make it with water. I can't believe it. You can make it with just water, and it's delicious. Or you can make it with something like almond milk, frozen strawberries. It tastes like a chocolate strawberry milkshake. 24 grams of plant-based protein to keep you full for hours, and 9 grams of fiber. A lot of people take it for uh, weight control. I didn't even know that when I started taking it. I took it because it gets me high. It's got macaroon in there for vitality, for energy, raw cacao in there, a wonderful mood-elevating quality. Uh, But it also does keep you full for hours. So it's like a meal replacement. It's like as close as I've come to finding a meal and a pill. And you can get 20% off and show your support of this show by going to kachava.com, K-A-C-H-A-V-A.com slash weird, and you will get 20% off your order. All right, guys. Hope to see you live for Kenny G on March 18th, largo-la.com for tickets, or on the 25th doing stand-up. And I hope to see you out on the road, Cleveland this weekend, San Jose, Houston, Phoenix, St. Louis, and Salt Lake City. All of those tickets are available at PeteHolmes.com. In the meantime, please enjoy my chat with my new friend, Ezra Klein. Get into it. Val, do you want to say it? Say, get into it? You can say anything. Anything. (laughs) Oh, real sassafras. Get into it. It's chilly back here. Yeah, it's crisp. That's good for comedy. It's like a piece of show business, I feel like. Is the House of Representatives... It looks warm. It looks warm. warm. It's old. Everybody in this is very old, so... Well, they love it. Yeah, so you gotta be under, like, a lot of... Do they make, like, an unwrap your Werther's Originals before we start the proceedings? (laughs) There has to be something. And we've done it. In the first 20 seconds, we've maxed out my ability to talk about politics. Wonderful. I would like to talk about as little politics as possible. Wouldn't you like to? I'll do whatever you want, but I'm excited about a... No, I I meant to take a break. I've said the... um, Thesis of the book many times, so I'm happy to go. As oh yeah, off off the off the rails. Well, as let's you want. get it out of the way up top. You wrote a book called Why We're Polarized. I did. How many? I'm not asking this question. How many interviewers just go, Ezra? Why are we polarized? Right? It's you're walking right into it. I made a tactical mistake from the beginning of the book. The, with the title? Yes, I just I, made crea- a- I created the first question. I my book. Sorry. I, I know if somebody asks that, they have not read the book. Yeah. That's like the, the tell because you would have – if you had read the book, not because the book says you shouldn't ask that, but just because if you'd read the book, you just – you would have – like something else would have made you mad yeah. or <laughs> come up first or – Yes. But if you have you're like, yeah, why are we polarized? It's okay. I got it. Do you? Sorry, Ezra. I was like the guy that was checking Twitter while I was talking to you just because we're trying to get these headphones to work, but – we're not. We're in this for the for the humanity. Oh yeah, the podcast the, the, game. Yeah, I just want to comment on decor. Like, I love your Joker, Batman. Oh, thank it you. reminds me of the end of Lego Batman, one of the maybe the greatest of all Batman movies. I haven't seen Lego Batman. That's embarrassing Who for you. Who voices the Joker? Is it? Oh, there. Oh, I am. something just happened. There. Oh, you didn't have it either. No. Oh, we were fighting the fight for you as well. Yes. I thought you were rocking. We were in solidarity. Now I need it down a little, please, Nolan. Thank you for figuring that out. 
and maybe split the difference between those two. You seem to me, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, like a person who would have seen Lego Batman. No, I take that as a high compliment. Uh, you're welcome. That's I'm how always, it's meant. I always feel like I'm letting people... Not That's not true. That's an overstatement. But sometimes I worry that I'm letting people down by not being as silly and light-filled as I come across. And when you say I see you as a light, uh, as, as a Lego Batman person, I hear I see you as a light-filled person. I'm like, that's who I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be the guy that has the bandwidth and the joy to be like, Lego Batman! <laughs> but I'm not always that guy. Sometimes I get... A uh, little smeagly, and I, I start to atrophy, and that's fair. And I draw the blinds, and I, watch, I feel like I have to be blood. a guy who wants to talk about politics all the time. Man, what a nightmare! But in my actual life, I'm actually I am harder to talk about politics with than your average person because I'm tired of it. Yeah, and also don't want to fall into professional persona when I'm around people I love and care about. I can't. I completely agree. This is the coldest microphone to hold. I'm. So I need sorry. like a glove. Do you want this to, blanket? No, I'm okay. But I, I'm just. I'm, just, in I'm a blanket, warming like an it up, woman. but it's. Yeah, it'll it's, warm. Uh, it'll it's heat. A, it'll like heat. a popsicle. We an do amplification want popsicle. the guest and everybody to be a little bit uncomfortable. Sure. I've always wanted to start the podcast with a reminder that we'll die one day, and here we're doing. Yeah, it. just a direct memento. You just mori. go like, just yes. Did you know there's a store called Memento Moria in Disney World? Really? And Disneyland? Does it have memento mori? Mementos mori? It has mementos more. Yeah. It just goes in and you buy a pen for the children that say, one day I'll be dust. I've been doing occasional um, memento more, like death meditations. Oh, great. I actually find it useful. It's the most useful. I, I guess I, I shouldn't say I actually find this centuries old oh, spiritual no. practice. Useful. There's no deer in a judgment free <laughs> zone. I'm not. What, what's, one, what's a political person that's rough on you? I don't know anything. I was going to say Wolf Blitzer. I don't know anything, Ezra. Wolf, You're in a safe place. That's an place. amazing person I'm to come no up with. Wolf Blitzer. I just mean uh, I'm so, I, I can't tell you how happy Chris, I am to be here. Chris this Matthews. Is one of the two podcasts, this is one of the two podcasts that got me into podcasting. Really? Yeah. I'm an old You Made It Weird fan. I'm so excited I'm so to do this. I'm so touched to hear that. That's really, really nice. Which is why I'm terrified they're going to talk to me about politics. Because I'm not. Yeah, it's going to be great. No. I mean, we'll talk. We can talk about it how you'd like to talk about it. But I, I'm interested in the show business of politics from your experience. That's that sounds like I'm going to like grill you. That's not what I mean. You have to. I'm interested you, you, in how you often have to wear a tie. Yes, but not always. That's right. I've seen you in many interviews wearing the. No I don't. Tie. I don't wear ties that often. Actually. Yeah, it's it, part of my signaling that I'm somewhat younger. Yep. Uh, but not not how old, so young. How old are we now? Thirty-five. How now old? I don't feel that young. I went through I went through a long period where people would ask me how old I was and I'd be like you motherfucker because but now they're trying to say you're wearing I, short pants. But now they don't even mean that they just mean that me being that young made them feel old. But now it's begun oh. to happen to me. I was just talking to somebody uh, at my last stop who was telling me they graduated uh, college in 2018. Wow! And I was like, I didn't even know you could graduate college yeah. in 2018. Yeah, and people are born in 2020. What well, we I know that. that. That I'm more comfortable with because I have a, a kid. But we are – I think at Vox we are either have but I think more likely are near to hiring our first person born after the millennium. Wow. Which is just – at that point I'm going to step out to an, onto an ice flow and yeah. go to my, my well, peaceful reward. We've been talking about that all Another the time. Another memento mori. <laughs> <laughs> young, young people are a memento mori all the time. I found what do you mean? Parenthood is a straight-up constant – Realization oh, sure, replacement. Die. Yes. I hug Leela all the time, and I'm like, what is going on in my brain? Oh, I'm hugging. And this is not how I categorize her in my mind, but I think something in my cells is going, this is you. This is how you will live on. I do Just constant like a, like a age virus. math in my head. 
<laughs> I'm all the time thinking, well, when he's 15, I'll be really, you know, 50, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And it just, I'm constantly like pushing this weird fast forward where when, when he's X, I'll be Y. And Why? it makes you realize that it's going to, it's going to come. That so it, you do it to trip out on the idea that at some point he'll be 15. No, I do it because I can't stop thinking like that. Yeah. I, it's more of an affliction. <laughs> it's a problem. I'm not sitting there thinking, God, it would be good if I was constantly calculating how close I am to no longer being able to spend time with my son. Well, there's a way to do it where you're. I trip out on enjoying that at some point I'll know who Leela is as a personality, right? So when I'm like, when she's 15, I'll be 55 or something. And that's crazy just to consider that she'll be a 15-year-old person. That I like to do. Mm-hmm. You're doing it like TikTok, TikTok, yes. Ezra. I'm running out of time. Yes. What a nightmare. I know. <laughs> it's, but it's, that's it's sort- part of it. It's a Jewish spiritual practice. I, I was going to make the joke, but I don't know if we're there yet. But <laughs> I, if we can open up the like the the kvetching style of sure. humor, I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't I'm really seem to me to have it. a kvetching style of humor. I don't. I I like I like Kvetch. You have. I, I, I hope complaining. you don't take this wrong way. You have the least Jewish sense of humor I've almost ever heard. I like that very much. I guess. How dare you? That can't be true. If Judd related and li- not that Judd is aggressively Jewish, but Judd made a joke. He's that, like he's like he's the like, version of the rabbis who certify kosherness for joke yes. for comedy. He makes us <laughs> sure we salt the blood, and then he he want, when I did a sketch with Judd, he was like you. He jokingly was like, "I can't work with you because I only work with Jewish people," and then it was like, "Well, I took it as a compliment." As I'm, I, I sort of have like how people are like that is going to uh, get clipped out in every oh no like, not on this show. podcast <laughs> no not this show you're in a safe pl- you could say anything on this show that's what they always tell you <laughs> and then you say anything and then actually in the in the realm of Jewish jokes my grandfather had a joke that I think about a lot and I, I wonder if I'm wrong about how this joke went but as I remember it uh, a guy goes into the doctor and says you know um, doctor like my wife left me uh, I'm sick. Like I don't know what to do. And the doctor says, "Well, smile. I mean, at least things can't get any worse." And so the guy smiled, and then things got worse. <laughs> Wait, I'm looking for, and his teeth fell out or something. You're just saying, as I remember it. The it's, joke just ends just with, joke. and then things got worse. For some reason, that is stuck in my head forever. I am almost certain, knowing my grandfather, my late grandfather, that that's probably not how the joke went. But I remember it clearly, and for some reason, I think of it often. I think I know. I have a theory why. Go. We've known each other almost 12 minutes. I know. But uh, Steve Martin, on his records, this was in his book, he talked about how his records were really popular because he was doing visual comedy on an audio medium. So he's doing things and you can't see them. So I was a communications major. (laughs) What a useless thing. Uh, It becomes a hot medium, meaning it's participatory. Mm -hmm. You have to imagine what is he doing. So you actually have this sort of relationship with Steve and the record as opposed to just like downloading content. Yeah. Similarly, your grandfather's joke makes you wonder how then it's very rabbinical. I like that. Yeah. The young boy stands up on Passover and goes, how then did things get worse, father? And then you discuss and debate. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that. <laughs> I also just like the grimness of that joke. Yeah. Um, this is actually not it. One thing that I believe is that journals and just in life is that it is okay to say things are bad or have been bad or are bad and will get worse. I'm like not a big believer in false optimism. And so just like that joke, yeah, like things can get, they, there's a comfort oh, yeah. in knowing things can get worse. Like the old, like the closest thing to optimism that exists in my book is the idea that 
as bad as we think things are today, they were almost always worse in the past. We have just like erased it in the stories we tell. Yeah. And so if you want to feel better, the way to do it is not to fool yourself about the now, but be more clear eyed about the then. Oh, which then? American then or global? American then. then. I mean, global then has also been bad. I mean, yeah. life has been the trends have been in general good over the last couple hundred years, but oh my god, the levels have often been terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even right now, the trend in America is bad, but the levels actually not nearly as bad as you would think it is. Just watching the news or feeling the level of emotional alarm, like things aren't nearly as bad as they were in the '90s, for instance. Interesting. Um, and so. Just recognizing things have generally been pretty bad and you're just trying to make That's them a funny. bit better at a time is like there is a kind of realist comfort in it. I was going to jump to the 60s. You went to the 90s? Oh, the si- I know. That's my point. The, the 90s, which we remember is like the only – you could not be – Okay, soda? Don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> don't ask, don't tell was the compromised position. Oh, you're right. Yeah, don't ask, don't tell was like considered like, progressive. No, Nobody wanted – like this is like a – more into politics but if you read bill clinton's convention platform on immigration it just sounds like donald trump really yeah it just it's like straight up trumpist yeah um things were just worse yeah they were like less fair less decent you know what's funny it was it didn't it felt like it was getting better which is important to people i noticed that in in comedy i know this sounds silly but literally your thing is politics my thing is comedy i look at comedy of olden days and i'm like if you did this now yes it is hate speech. Yes. And I'm not saying like, and it shouldn't be. I'm saying because I was raised religious, <laughs> I, I, I stopped doing this joke. I was like, I, I was way ahead of the curve on being offended, right? People don't like that joke. They also <laughs> like don't understand. That. I like that I, joke. I, I'll say it in conversation. I'll say it to you. <laughs> but it either gets applause from the Christians because they think I'm saying we're right. And I'm, and I'm trying to say, but I'm not religious anymore, but like when I was, and I'm actually kind of teasing that you're offendable, but you don't get it. And then the people who aren't Christian are like, are you saying we're like fundamentalists? Like, fuck you. So like no one wins. So I don't do the joke anymore. Um, but I used to see just as kind of like a, as much my religious identity, I also went to an aggressively liberal grade school, K through eight, uh, K through, yeah, eight. And... I just had like a more sensitive barometer for like what was offensive, especially when it came to like making fun of gay people or making fun of other races or whatever it might have been. So when I was doing comedy, I was like in, you know, the early 2000s, I was like, what the fuck is going on with a lot of it? And when I watched the comedy in the 90s, I was picking up on what you're picking up on when you're watching Bill Clinton's immigration policy. Or anything. I mean, I every so often rewatch The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Sure. Um, which is an amazing movie. But that scene where they're just going back and forth with, you know how I know your gay jokes, sure. that scene does not age well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember seeing that in the and, theater and all but like standing up. And I just told you I went to an, an, a way more than usual liberal school. And I was still like, yes, you're gay if you like Enya. You know what I mean? Like, this is how we talk. It's finally on the screen. Although... uh to be honest, I didn't I didn't learn that type of joking until later in life. <laughs> but I know what you mean. These are these are how we. But yeah. We'll, so the trend feels really bad, but we've not given back actually a lot of the gains we've made. Like that's my piece of optimism about this moment. That as bad as Donald Trump is, and I think he's real bad, that the gains that got made over long long periods of time, like it's a this is a a push on them, but it has not nearly succeeded yet. We are not back to even the levels of acceptable bigotry and um dismissal sure of the 90s yeah yeah yeah. that's right i'm and I'm, the 60s were fucking crazy well i don't even want to say it 
but I was thinking about these times and I was like, it's kind of nuts. We have so many, I won't even list the things going on. I'll forget some and I'll be embarrassed, but there's so many things going on. And then I was like, yeah, but in the 60s, there was a lot going on and leaders were being killed, like our yeah. leaders. I think it is. So one of the the things I talk about in the book is, um, so polarization, right, is like the, the point I make about it in the book is that it's about how your disagreements sort by party, not about whether or not you have disagreements. And right. so in the 60s, when you look at what we were fighting over, civil rights, women's rights, indigenous rights, Vietnam, you had the Kent State killings, um, urban riots, the assassinations of JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and people forget – Squeaky Fromm pointed a gun at Gerald Ford from as far away from him as I am from you and pulled the trigger and the gun just didn't go off. Oh, wow. So like Gerald Ford almost joined that group and Ronald Reagan was shot through the lung. Yeah, that's, so, that's what I'm saying. And Harvey Milk. I mean, imagine I don't need this is what I don't want to say to quote our Jewish yeah. friends. Papa. But like you want to be like, what if someone we beloved was attacked? That's the 60s to me is like change is coming there's this voice of change they're dead and that's fucking crazy and so the the one thing that was both bad for some periods of that was that the political system because this stuff didn't sort by party like the civil rights act was a perfectly bipartisan bill because it didn't support by party either what happened in politics was it suppressed disagreement as it did over race for a long time in a very unjust way or it figured out a way to compromise through it which brought down the the temperature um, when that worked now though can you imagine the way that would be amplified yeah. By politics, yeah, you know the the what people would do with those moments. Mm. I I I think that that is my scary version. That if you got back to that level of social discord, that the role politics would play would be an accelerant and just a gasoline on the conflict. Right. I think it's interesting. Your whole book topic is interesting. Thank you. Identity is interesting. Yeah, just a bland compliment. I'm, I'm just I was, Ezra. You, you can use thing. that on the back of your book if you want. <laughs> I said interesting. <laughs> Some guy uh, that helped you launch your podcast. That's my main credit. It's like that led to the Ezra Klein show. <laughs> or I, I just stand if I if I see further than other men, it is because I stand on the shoulders of Pete Holmes. Ah, <laughs> thank you. Um, what was I going to say though? We're talking about how bad things are. What were we talking about? I don't know, because you were going to say it. The 60s. Yeah, I know. It went away. Oh, identity. I think one of the reasons oh, I right. don't My book like... Is interesting. Let's, let's shit on <laughs> politics. <laughs> let's not shit on politics. One of the reasons I'm not into um, politics as much as even your average person, and then sports considerably less than the average person, and even when it comes to like cultural phenomena... Like Breaking Bad, I'll watch it or Lost. I'm into it enough, but as I get older, I'm less and less with uh, interested in inheriting more identity. As you know from listening to this podcast, spiritual podcast or whatever you want to call it, not a religious podcast, but I find identity to be a fun game to play, and it can be very useful. It can lead to specifically with politics it can lead to change it can lead to less suffering it can mean to more liberation of people and and all and less and less pain like i said so i understand that there's certain times i have to go like well i'm i know it doesn't light my fire but you have to get involved so i'm going to concede that up top but like the older i get the more i'm about like i'm not a man i'm not a bostonian i'm not we, you i heard you talking about veganism these are all things that i use to identify myself but they're not as interesting to me. It's like a real – it's a game. Like like I was very interested. You were saying 
12 Years of Slaves. Make the 12 Years of Slave point, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So it, there's a political scientist named Michael Tesla, and one of the things he's looked at is the way what we might call like racialized controversy split or don't split by party. So in the 90s, things like the O.J. Simpson trial, the Bernard Getz trial, the subway, which was subway shootings um, of a white man uh, uh, against black teenagers, I think it was. Those kinds of things were very socially divisive if you look at polling, but they didn't split by party. Democrats and Republicans had more or less the same views on them. What did split them? Region? Uh, I did, race race is one of the big things that mm. split them, but mm-hmm. just people had very different views on it. So I don't sure. know if there were splits in the – But there was that, a lot but, of room to be like, I'm a Republican, but I'm for yeah, this. But, but yeah, exactly. Today, um, when you do this kind of polling, it splits very, very sharply by, by race. So the George Zimmerman by, uh, trial – Not race. State, I'm sorry, by party. Thank you. Um, the George Zimmerman trial, but the the particular example you're pulling out here is somebody polled, should 12 Years a Slave win the Best Picture Oscar, which is, I think, an amazing version because that was not a, a politicized controversy in the sense that like Republicans and Democrats didn't weigh in on it. I believe it was 67% of Democrats said absolutely and 12% of Republicans did. So now you're seeing these sorts of same conflicts that were there in society they weren't it's not that we didn't have racialized controversy before it's that now it is mapped on in a very deep way to party and that's because of a number of things that have in the democratic party that have made it part of the democratic party identity is you know racial equity and being concerned about structural discrimination and things like that and part of the republican party identity is uh being less concerned about those things feeling like that has gone too far um and so now you have these these party identities mapped onto or feeding in from uh, not just sort of direct race identity, like I'm, you know, a white person or an African American person, but also racial value identities. Right. I wonder if people have pointed out that Joker has like a, a what is it like a, a celibate but not by choice incel an incel like overlooked. You are you are white wondering loner. if people have. I don't follow that stuff. That is really amazing. Don't. Are people really picking up on that? <laughs> They, they've definitely – I've not seen the Joker. Ezra, if you're wondering why I'm a Lego Batman kind of guy, it's because I don't know if that's a story. Have you been out of this? Not much. <laughs> I know you have an 11-month-old. I have a 16-month-old. Yeah. Literally, my day is I'm up at 5. I put her back down around 8 or 9. I nap, and then I do a podcast. So I'm yeah. not jumping on Twitter to be like, <laughs> wait a minute. That story was about a white man really feeling like everyone was overlooking him. And now that I'm thinking about it, everybody that tells him go fuck yourself is a minority for the most – or a non-white person. I have not – so it's funny. I'm in the opposite position of you. I have not seen this movie. Yeah. But I am, for my sins, very um, – I, I, I exist within a lot of visibility of the cultural conversation. I see. People noticed that. <laughs> that is the way I would put it. Ezra, I'm – People picked up on that thread. If I'm here only to look <laughs> somewhat dumb and be comfortable and confident while being dumb, I think that might be the sub <laughs> subtitle of this whole podcast. I want to say something to you about 12 Years a Slave and Identity. Yeah. And I'm really – forgive me, listeners, because you maybe have heard me say this before. But it was a defining moment for me in politics. I went to a Christian college. I was friends with a guy named Heath. Heath was a – flaring Republican. Just, and I was really drawn to him uh, because I, I didn't know any young people, this is in 2000, that were just like super, I didn't know what the DNC was. I didn't know what the RNC, I didn't know what anything was. This guy was living, breathing politics. And it was like, I don't want to, I'm not putting him down when I say he had like an, almost like an L. Ron Hubbard type like charisma where you're like, tell me everything about the world. I don't know anything. You know what I mean? Like, just somebody that you were drawn to. And I, I, I still imagine he's a, a, a an exciting person, an interesting person. So I met him. I was friends with him. 
he was so excited about the George W. Bush election. He was really pushing for George W. Bush to win. And again, I grew up in all these liberal Cambridge, Massachusetts places. And I was like confused by that. And I'm probably 19 or so. And I'm like, just tell me, or I'm 20, 21. I was like, tell me about politics. What, what do you like about Republicans? And he went on and made me a Republican for like 30 minutes. In fact, the fir- first thing I registered was as a Republican. He just sold it to me so beautifully and passionately about how it should be like less government. And, and like they believe that the church is supposed to help people, not the government. And, and that churches should be better, but that shouldn't be, you shouldn't tax people. Like why should working people have to pay for this and that? That's what the church is for. So he's kind of mixing religion. Mm-hmm. And I was just sort of sitting, not literally, but at his knee being like, holy shit, this guy's incredible. And it was about how the government... Uh, should get out of the fucking way, basically, and just be the government and run boring government stuff and let us have our money and, and our liberty, basically. So I was like, holy shit. But then I was like, I remember for some reason or another being like, okay, so re- I think at the time I just thought Republicans and conservatives were the guys that are like, you should get a soda pop and you should take your girl to the dance and you should kiss her on the cheek and say hello to her father on the way home. You know what I mean? Just like the gentleman's class. And then I was like, well, what about tobacco? Assuming that he was going to say tobacco is killing millions and millions of people a year. It's a fucking horrible thing. It should not be uh, given breaks. It should not be encouraged as a crop. And he went, obviously, he went completely the other way and was like, tobacco is a good American crop. It's a cash crop. It makes money for farmers. And, and I was just sitting there going like, oh, it's not, you know, the good boy club. But what I'm saying is I saw my friend Heath towing a line of identity, even when the issues jumped the line from what the Norman Rockwell Republican image that I thought he embodied. And as soon as it went to like cigarettes make money for people and therefore they make money for the government and for everybody there, it's okay. I watched that eerie feeling you get when you're like, Oh, you're just swallowing a whole rhetoric. Yeah. Even though I know if your part, I, we say this on the podcast all the time. If, for some reason, liberals were like very, very pro-gun and conservatives were very anti-gun, but everything else was the same. Would we like, how many people would just be like, that's our thing. Fuck you. Fuck you. I can't tell. Oh, we see it all the time. I mean, uh, two things on this. So one, please go. I think about this, that era a lot because isn't it weird that the Republican Party's view in that era, like the Heath view, I assume, was that government can't do anything right. Like, you don't want your health care by the government because you've been to the DMV. Right. And you're like, I remember that. We're going to invade a country we know nothing about and rebuild the whole society from the ground up as a liberal democracy. And you're like, the government's going to do that. Like, right. Yes. And is it going to go well? I'm like, absolutely. Like, it's going to be great. <laughs> but we can't handle health care. That's But you can't, like, but, like, the DMV can't get your, your license, which is – and Democrats do this kind of thing, too. Like, the point is not that only Republicans do it. But there is a lot less coherence um, I was doing Doc Shepard's show not long ago, um, and I love he was saying and he's great, and he was saying that you know we need to have this debate in society. It's a good debate to have between like the people who believe in equality and the people who believe in liberty, which is I agree, except that that debate is in no way coherent to what people to like what the parties end up believing. Like sometimes the Democrats want more liberty from something and like less of the government, like setting an equal balance. Sometimes Republicans want the opposite, and so you just end end up in. 
like path dependent, sometimes incoherence, but also people take cues. So I've got a study I talk about in the book by a guy named Jeffrey Cohen. And he gets a bunch of students. I think he's a political scientist or political psychologist at Stanford. So he had a bunch of students, and at the beginning of the year, he gives them like a survey. And he says – a bunch of questions on it, but among the questions are how interested are you in politics? Like how strongly a member of a party are you? And how strongly do you feel? How much do you know about welfare? This is a number of years ago when this was a bigger issue. And later, he takes the kids who said they were the most involved in politics, had the strongest views, and particularly had the strongest views on welfare. And he gives him uh, some newspaper articles to look at. And like in all these studies, the newspaper articles have changes in them depending on who you are. And basically the articles either like describe <laughs> – the, the, the papers either describe like a super generous welfare policy. It gives you a lot of money. It doesn't run out. You get health insurance. You're guaranteed a job. It's renewable, like et cetera, et cetera, or like a super stingy mean one where it runs out quickly and you get nothing and, and so on. But the thing that he does is he varies in the newspaper articles which party is supporting which policy and has leading oh, politicians. Oh, Ezra, you devil. Leading po- – well, I didn't do it. Leading politicians. Yeah, but like, you're telling me, it from, so you from... did this study. I'm, picture- <laughs> I'm casting you as the man in the lab coat. There you go. And exactly what you would think would happen given that I'm telling you the story happens, which is that like the Republicans who say they have a super strong conservative on welfare, if the – if the super liberal policy is described, but the Republican Party is supporting it, they support it. Yeah. And the liberals who have the super liberal view on wealth on, on welfare, if the super stingy conservative one is described, but they see the Democratic Party and the liberals are supporting it, they support it, which is to say we take our cues from our party. There's an amazing Isn't another just, study. Yes. I won't say it's super great length, but I just love its take title. It's by Bar- two guys named Bartels and Akins, and it's called It Feels Like We're Thinking. You are fun. <laughs> you know, nobody says that when I talk about political science studies that usually, so thank you. But I mean that you retained that and brought it here like a cat brings a dead bird. That's a gift. It feels like, like a cat like brings a dead bird. Yes, sure. it feels like you're it thinking. It feels like we're thinking. But that's what I mean. The whole thing just feels like an enema. Like an no, it feels like we're thinking, animal. not like a. <laughs> but that's the, what thinking how does feels it, like. How does it feel like when you think? I just mean it's just titillation. <laughs> it's just like. Again, how does like, it. <laughs> Very fun. I love thinking, uh, but it feels like you're. No, it just study... like you really love enemas. Well, I do have a bidet. Just du- du- direct titillation. So I, I guess I was picturing more of a light bidet, which is, <laughs> which is a delightful way to start your morning. Uh, you were saying what is what is the? It feels like our our thinking study. It feels like we're thinking. Um, is another one of these studies. So one thing that that study shows, uh, to to fast forward it, is that, and this is, I think, a scary thing to think about if you're um, like me, which is you spend all your time in politics and think about it a lot, that the people who do the most of this kind of partisan self-deception, um, which is the most fitting ideas into their basically group identity buckets, are the people who are the most informed, mm. spend the most time thinking about it, the smartest about politics. So right. there's like this idea that maybe it's all just misunderstandings, and if we all just like had the good information, we would actually agree, and we're just fighting because we haven't read enough. But And I have a lot of evidence on this in the book, but in fact, it goes the opposite way. The more the you more know you about re- politics, the Dude. better you are at backing up what it is your group already needs you to believe, almost no matter whether or not that was what they needed you to believe two years ago or not. I could – okay. One of the reasons – I think I'm just sort of being utilitarian and pragmatic when I am – I get my politics mostly from human beings. I get it at parties. I get it at dinners. I ask people about stuff, and they're like, didn't you see it on Twitter? And I'm just like, no, just you tell me. You tell me. And, and I, I get by okay that way. 
And then I have friends that are obsessed with politics. And I think it's really weird. These are the people, and I'm sure, forgive me, Ezra, you've probably heard this a million times, but these are the people that were saying two things that I feel like have been proven to not be true. One, uh, they were like, Donald Trump cannot win. I, I'm sure you get thrown this every day. It's I, I said that too. I'm sure everybody. I'm gonna said it. I'm gonna put myself on the board. But Ezra, here. weren't you one of the people that thinks about it the most? I mean, aren't you? Yes. Couldn't you have fallen prey to your own? Thing? I def- in that case, I mean, I fell prey to some other weirder theories. They weren't really. I thought a Republican could definitely win. I had a weird political science reason. I thought Donald Trump couldn't, but nevertheless, okay. nevertheless, it was wrong. You had a more interesting, nuanced reason why you thought he couldn't. No, win. No, that was why a lot. Of, I just thought he. Whatever. I'm talking I was about wrong. just news junkies. Yeah. You're on the inside. You're a journalist. You're doing this stuff. I'm just talking about my friends that watch whatever they're watching the way that I watch movies. Yeah. They're into it. And then the other thing, they would be like, Bernie couldn't... It, I, I give money to Bernie, and they're like, Bernie will never happen. And I was just like, I I never get to be the person skating on the thing. I'm usually losing my head and getting too involved in a lot of stuff that I care about. But with politics, I get to be the person that's just like, I don't know why. I just think you're wrong. Because... When Val and I do talk about politics, and you can talk to me, I go, would you like to know what it's like to talk to an idiot? I'm an idiot. You're not an idiot. I I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just like, I'm the guy who, I'm not that informed, but I go with like basic stuff where I'm like, Bernie's a good story. He lost, I'm looking at it as a storyteller, as a showbiz guy. People feel like he got robbed last time. He's been consistent. We have no truth. And here comes an old guy coming in and basically, it's basically the book of Amos in the Old Testament. He comes in and he's like, I'm here to shake it up. And I'm like, that's a good story. I get Mm -hmm. that. And I think that will I, move people. I think, too. So, one, I thought Trump couldn't win the Republican primary. I always thought he could win the general, I should just say. Oh, interesting. So, in terms of what I was wrong about, I thought the Republican Party wouldn't – like would stop him. Uh-huh. Um, and that the parties had just more power over their primaries than they ended up having. But what this is something I argue in the book. But because people are actually so sorted um, in terms of the party they ultimately support, whyever they support it, I don't think there's a lot of chance I, I could be wrong. But – you and your social circle here, probably not that many people, no matter who becomes a Democratic nominee, are going to vote Republican. Right. People very rarely now switch over to vote from one side to the other. It's not never, but it's gone way, way down because the two sides are so different. And so once you win a party's nomination, you can win. Like that is it at the presidential level. Like you right. start at that point with 46 percent of the vote. Yeah. And now you're like, wow. some lucky breaks you're away. Fun. You Is are that fun? Because look where we are. <laughs> no, no. I just think like things explained cleanly and clearly is fun. Thank you. That it is my brand. A fun feeling. <laughs> I, I don't like politics, but I'm like, I like what this guy's saying. Wonderful. You're right. If you win the nomination, you're already yeah. going to get. But dude. The, the people are like, Bernie can't win. That's clearly wrong. I get so lit up. Again, I'm going to tie this into. I, let's not forget our original point was I was saying the more informed people just seem to be not necessarily batting better than an idiot just skating on the froze over lake of politics it was just like i'm just sort of like occasionally listening to which way the wind is blowing and it does look like bernie has a has a shot we could be wrong who knows i'm not saying he's definitely gonna get the nomination but i was talking to somebody that was like you're an idiot you you don't know what you're talking about and i was like all right like let's let's get into whether or not news is intended to inform us later but i love go to tie this into religion people that will cross lines like my heroes richard Rohr is a good example whenever he talks about politics he does talk about a fluidity that you just don't see these days when people are just like like i grew up christian and we're just you just vote for the pro-life candidate even though we know that people have more abortions under pro-life uh candidate i've i've, I've heard 
or whatever. It doesn't stop abortions. Is it? It's not a good enough one single issue thing mm-hmm. as I as I thought it was when I was a person like yeah. that. Anyway, we don't have the heroes that go like I am so informed and and know my heart well enough that I'm going to actually vote for a Democrat or I'm going to cross and vote for a Republican because of this this and this this. We are just identity hungry people that are busy and tired and would like to eat and fuck something. And we just go, I'm a Republican. Just like my dad says he's a Red Sox fan, which again goes back to my dislike of, of identity because I'm like, the Red Sox is a fucking story. It's an illusion. I know this isn't a new point. They're from the Dominican Republic. They're from Arizona. They're from Florida. They're not Boston. And we just and they'll go, leave yes, if you, they if are. they get a better deal. And they'll leave the I, second. And you'll cheer I'm for them. I'm also not a sports fan you at all. Fucking di- <laughs> I'm, I'm not actually. No, I, I, I actually get, am not. I know. I was going to call yeah. them dopes. I don't think you're dopes. I just think like it's it's one of those ways that we go, this is me. And when you look at it, it's vapor. And that is a lot of things. <laughs> right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a whole riff here because I think you're going like to like this one. I'm going to love it. But I'm going to just put a pin in, which I think I may have picked up from you. Ooh, put I'll, a pin I'll in. I'll write it down. Would you like me to write down a keyword? So I'll, I'll remember it. But that oh. I think – so parties – Ticket switching and stuff has gone way, way down, and I think there are good reasons for that. I don't think it's crazy, and I think sometimes we lionize people who go back and forth for less of a good reason than we should. Um, but but let me come back to that. We lionize so, them? Yeah, we, we think it's great, right? It, it's I like, was just making sure I knew that. I'm going to steal that word. It's a, it's a great word. Um, it's a great word. It sounds so, like ionized, but other than that, <laughs> I'm into it. So some of the book is built on this – like a – bigger framework of how do human beings experience identities like how do they form what happens and the super foundational research here was done by a guy named henry tajfell (laughs) (laughs) and does rachel maddow do that you know not as often (laughs) i've actually interviewed rachel maddow oh really she was a she's on the show she did my talk show Oh, we made a lot of like. Was this back in the day? Yeah, Got it. she did us a favor. I would really like to have Rachel Maddow on. You made it weird. I would love to have Rachel Maddow on. You made it weird. I bet you would enjoy. As I promise, we'll get to eventually a break from politics. <laughs> but at least, are we talking about it in a way that? No. So back to Henry. So Henry Toshfell is a Polish Jew born in I think the twenties, um, maybe the teens, and leaves for France um, in the thirties because he can't go to university in Poland because he's Jewish. Uh, World War II begins. He joins up, and he's captured by Germans and is a prisoner of war. His He is not killed because he's understood as a French prisoner of war, not a Polish Jew. If he had been, if it had come out that he was a Polish Jew, he would have been sent to the camps and killed. He gets out. A couple of years later, war ends. Um, his entire family is dead. And he becomes obsessed and focused on this question of group identity. How do people develop group identity how do you see people as part of a different group like what is what is happening did you see jojo i haven't i would like to though fucking incredible but the holocaust is sort obviously (laughs) it's not it's like my joker point that's what makes identity so disturbing is it's such a shaky thing you are a french soldier you don't die so if we knew a different name for the the bones and atoms that I'm looking at would kill you. I, I hate. I hate it. So, well, you're going to hate it more after this. So, oh, great. He gets into this idea. He becomes interested in this idea of can he pinpoint exactly what you need for a group identity to take hold and for people to begin treating each other badly because of it. And so he starts up a series of experiments called the minimal group paradigm experiments. And the first one is just it's just amazing. Brings in 64 boys who all go to the same school, and he 
has him sit down and he says, I want you to look at this screen of dots. Like, guess how many dots there are. So they do. And like the researcher score, we're, in, we're like, we're, we're testing how good you are at guessing dots. There's more so than three dots. There's like a lot, they're of, like dots. A lot of dots. It's like a yeah. colorblindness test. Yeah. I have no idea how yeah. many dots, but enough that it's a tricky guess. Okay. Like jelly, jelly beans, beans in, the in a jar. jar. Exactly. Cat with a mouth. Keep it going. <laughs> so he does that. And then, you know, when that's over, they say, actually, well, we have all you kids here. Do you mind staying for one more experiment? It's not related to the first thing. Um, but just for ease of use, we're going to separate you into two groups who are the dot overestimators and the dot underestimators. In reality, it's totally random. They're not really separated on this. Like the researchers didn't care what they did with the dots. Oh, my God. So those, the, those cheeky bastards. <laughs> so the next study is just allocating money, not to themselves, but to other kids. And but, you know, if like the other kids are like co dot overestimators or co dot underestimators, even though in reality it's all yes, random, right? And immediately, the kids begin favoring the people who are in their dot group, despite right. the fact that it's a meaningless group itself oh, built on something rough. false. So the idea in this study was to like start with something under the line of where group identity would take hold, and then begin adding conditions. He actually was never able to find a line low enough because. It was it happened simple so as quickly. So then he did another study because like this may be wrong. Oh um, my god! So he brings in kids again, has them look at paintings by Paul Klee and someone Kandinsky. Um, which painting do you prefer? Again, they're separated based on painting preference. In reality, it's random separation. But now they did something else in the money allocation part, where they they created a a, a way of allocating the money where you could maximize how much more your fellow painting lovers got over the other painter lovers uh-huh. but if you did it that way it would mean even your people got less so it's like did you care more about giving more to the people who liked your painting or more about just beating the other group as much as you can and it was the latter it's not enough that dogs no you actually he has fail. this good line he's like the winning it's the winning that's important and it feels like thinking it feels like thinking it's winning. It's important. He says, oh. he says it was gratuitous discrimination. It was some, some line like that. And so then this gets, I mean, this study has been replicated forever, but look at sports, Yeah. right? Sports. If you, if you're like, Oh, these are just kids. Like sports is similarly. It is a, and I love the beautiful acts of human um, excellence that are sports, but people don't go because they love sportsmanship. Actually, my wife will sometimes no. go to a sports game and hold up a good sportsmanship sign, but most people don't. They get Hilarious. into a team. And so, that, well, yes, yes, of course. I love sports movies. If you want yes. to show me a slow motion uh, quarterback throw or whatever, but that's not what we're doing. We're blitzed yeah. on watery beer and nachos <laughs> and we're screaming for colors. Yes. Not everybody. But I want to be clear that I not don't but a lot not of people. understand the thrill of that. And even. I don't want to, I, the, the point I actually say this in the book, I have a whole chapter about sports. There, I, I, I love this. I hope you there spelled was it a, right. There was a <laughs> book that came out a couple That's years ago. That's a joke that neither of us are sporty. That spelled not it right? That that, not that you're stupid, but that, like you don't know enough about sports, yeah, so I, you spell it sports. Oh, I was actually doing an interview, and I mispronounced <laughs> a key player's name the other day, and the guy's like, yeah, you really don't like sports. That's hilarious. Um, I, I love, there was a book that came out a couple years ago. I saw it in a bookstore. It's in, it's in my book now. And the, ha- the title of it was, To Hate Like This Is To Be Happy Forever. Wow. And I'm like, that's the best title I've ever heard. What is this book about? It was about the UNC Duke North Carolina college basketball rivalry. Wow. And 
it's just it's I'm not being condescending to this like it's pulling at the deepest thing in us it's like evolutionary capacity to define sense and then compete with another group define our in-group and compete with the out-group and politics then adds on to this not just like random groupings and colors but literal life and death outcomes um you know like are you going to get health insurance are we going to like have a draft to go to war are we going to do something about climate change so when you add group identity on top of the really super genuine stakes of politics i mean look how into people are about look how into sports people are based on much lower stakes very little happens to you if your team loses a game one of them is counting beans and one of them is is a much more definitive identity. but it but it but it is like this similar it is this very primal powerful psychological thing that's easier to feel than policy it takes work to think about a lot of kinds of policy and i'm a policy journalist but you gotta work at it this stuff once it keys into like they're the bad guys and we're the good guys right it doesn't take much at all like it's very easy that's why in my book i was fascinated with the moment where johnny damon becomes a yankee and comes back to fenway park and we cheer for him i was like what is going i have no idea what you just said johnny damon was a red Sox. Then he got traded to the Yankees, or he went to the Yankees for a better deal. But then they come back to Fenway Park, which is where the Red Sox play. And then the Red Sox fans, you'd think they'd boo because he betrayed them. Uh But they cheer, which I, in my book, is a spiritual book. I'm trying to say this is a moment of mass enlightenment. Like we're being Uh awakened because we know that he's just playing a game. Like we're seeing beyond his identity. You could also just be like, or we're just really dumb and we're just like, that's Johnny. He hit home runs for us. But you should boo him. Like he, he fucked your mom. You know what I'm saying? Like, but there is intelligence happening even in the masses. Yeah. We're not any one thing, right? These are, we are very, very different depending on, this is a big thing about identity for me that we all have many, many identities and depending on which one gets activated is really important. Yeah. Um, And whether or not you see people as in-group and out-group, like we don't hate everybody of every other identity. And oftentimes we love people of, of other identities. And sometimes I'm thinking about things for my political identity and sometimes because I'm Californian or Jewish or a vegan or whatever. And it's very important to know that you can like work to activate others at a point. Like oftentimes when I'm doing politics, one of the things I try to hold is that I am as like pissed off as I might be getting, I'm a journalist. That's a very important identity to me. And I will actively pull that forward. Right. Like the other things have to go down for right now. I need to understand this. I can't I don't have the luxury to just be mad about it. I remember the night Donald Trump won, actually, and like I am I, I don't think it'll shock people to to know that like I was upset about his victory. I thought that was bad for the country. I thought it was bad for people I cared about. And I remember a lot of people around me like kind of like people were crying that night. I mean, a lot of liberals had very strong emotional reactions. And I remember having the thought, I don't have time to experience this. I can't experience this right now. It's time from that part of my identity. Like I have to be a journalist right now. That's right. I completely understand. I think playing different roles, like I was just thinking, I was like just last night, maybe I was thinking about her interview. If I had to talk to another comedian it's similar to a police officer talking to another police officer. There's a way – I think maybe we were watching uh, Succession. We were. And when people negotiate, they're careful to use the right 
triggering words that let the other person know that you understand them. So similarly, if I'm talking to a comedian, I'm going to call them bits, not jokes. And that that puts their shoulders down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now we're like relating at a more human level because I'm going like, look, I'm like you. We share an identity. This is why pe- my dad wears Red Sox jerseys. He goes around looking for other Red Sox so they can connect. So there's something sort of lovely about that. But I'm, I couldn't be more interested in the idea that like you, Ezra, came on this podcast and the first thing we talked about was like, which Ezra are you summoning? Mm-hmm. Like, with with whom would you like to talk? Yeah, that is one of the cornerstones of my thing. Like, I catch myself going, or Val will catch me slipping into my comedian persona. I understand there is genetic hardwiring stuff. There's my my father's personality, my mother. It's in there, but it's really just like a choice to kind of. Go over here. Like, I got in trouble. Uh, but you got to know it's a choice you can make. I, I, I talked about I this idea. Agree. I have an idea at the end of the book called Identity Mindfulness, yes. which in politics places is going to be made a little bit fun of um, because mindfulness can't fix politics. And it's true. It mostly cannot. But if you are not mindful of it, then it just could, then you're just an easy mark for manipulation. If you're not mindful that identity is something that you have lots of and they get pulled forward and people are trying to manipulate you. That's exactly like, right. You, the more you have you're to pay attention anchored to, it. to your identity, the more manipulatable you are. If you can get me fired up into my mode yeah. of comedy, put me in a green room with five other – put me in a green room with Chris D'Elia, Bill Burr, Natasha – Fuck Sarah. We'll just have a gay old time being like old timey gay. <laughs> old timey. You can't nail me to that one. Old timey gay old time of being like, shut the fuck up. You guys can't take a joke. We'll get all riled up. But the more we're stuck in that corner of our persona, the more you can manipulate me and get me to like vote on things that I wouldn't if you greeted me and spoke to me in my fullness. Mm-hmm. Isn't that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the lines <laughs> yeah, out of the book question, is that Pete. identity activates under threat. There it is! I mean, that was shorter, obviously. In You <laughs> Salty Dog. In my book, I said when my wife left me, I considered buying a Red Sox hat. I And then later, oh, I, I, we've covered how I'm not a, a sports fan. Yeah. But when you're in trauma, yeah. 9-11... You want your identity more. And I wanted to be like my wife was my ex-wife was from Maine. I am from Boston. People from Boston don't fucking cheat, kid. That's fucking Maine shit. I was looking for anything to otherify her and go, I'm over here with the good Boston boys, as if people in Boston don't have There's a no fears. infidelity in Boston. <laughs> Straight. But I was I was any port in the storm. Yeah. And that's what you just said. How did you say it? You said- Identity activates under threat. So my yeah. dad's an immigrant. Um, he came here from Brazil. And I don't think as a lot as I move through the world that I'm the son of an immigrant. My I'm like in some way like half of me, I guess, is a first generation American until the moment you start talking shit about immigrants. Mm. And then all of a sudden that identity activates very fiercely. Uh, somewhat similarly. I mean my identity as a Jewish person is important to me. But it isn't one of the primary lenses I use on the world. I'm not practicing. and But but if you start getting anti-Semitic, I, I feel that identity very intensely. And what politics is in many ways, and particularly online politics, is this tremendous machine of like identity threat. Now, I, I want to be clear about something because we're like focusing here on the identity part of it. Because politics has real stakes, this is sometimes the right way to feel. Oftentimes, people in politics, a reason it's activating something in you, like 
is because they want to close the border to immigrants. They want to do things right. that are going to hurt people. Right. And feeling outraged and pissed and wanting to organize against that, that, that is correct. Um, at other times, it can be used to manipulate you. So you're getting mad about things you shouldn't care about at all. Like I this you actually I think like the full version of this story, which I don't usually tell, but did you you may not have followed this. Do you remember there was a thing about a year ago with the Covington Catholic high schoolers? There was a, a protest on the National Mall. There were some like Catholic high school kids in MAGA hats. Oh and there I was a Native American yeah. drummer. Yeah. Let me I haven't I think maybe I have um let me tell you where I found out about that story. I was on my first silent meditation retreat <laughs> and I was in one of those, like you get to talk to the teachers for like two minutes, you know, for like 15 minutes a day. And I was in one of those like group interviews and one of the teachers was saying, oh, like, sorry if I'm a little riled up. Like we were just coming from discussing something really terrible happening in politics. And I'm a political journalist. So I've been like very calm for a couple of days. I'm like, oh my God, is something what has happened out there that I don't know? Do I need to get out and help with the coverage? Like is something – and I was like, what, what's happened? And they start explaining the story that there's like a protest on the National Mall and there were these kids from a high school and they were mean to a guy who was a Native American guy. But they had MAGA hats and I was like, this – I'll look into this when I get out. This doesn't seem to me like it matters at all. Like nobody even got anything more than their feelings hurt. Like people are dying from malaria. But I got out and we were in day four of this story. Everybody was arguing about it. The president had weighed in and it was just pure identity threat. Like it was white Christian Trump supporting teenagers and like Native American liberal drumming elder. And they always got described that way. And like the right felt these like young white Christian teenagers were being slammed by the media and treated terribly. And the left felt like the opposite. But also it just didn't. It just was not an important story, but it was pure identity. I mean, right. it grabbed a bunch of people's core identities, their values, all of it, like put it into a stew and like made it into a viral video that went out on Twitter. And then the whole media was talking about it for days. And like, that's a good example of the way identities can be used to manipulate us into caring about things we actively shouldn't care about when there are all these other things happening in the world that are really bad that are not implicating an identity. Right. And so it's harder for us to care about them. Like at that same time, a lot of people are dying in traffic accidents and like there are things you can do about that or housing california remained unaffordable and like there's shit you can do about that but no like we were all freaking out about this like little weaponized thing of identity threat that got like tossed out through social media and then became so big that everybody's like well we have to cover it because everybody's talking about it and now the president is talking about it and it's like let's piss everybody off for a week right for no reason other than it's a good drug Rage, yeah. rage is a, a good drug. And it's also immediate. So, One of my friends is line, partisanship is a hell of a drug. There you go. I was going to say one of the challenges as a spiritual person, I'm, I'm very interested that you were on a silent retreat. I'd love to hear more about that, is that people are looking for a guaranteed experience. Nice. My, my sternum pops. It's I terrible. It. And it's like it's gotten a lot worse since having a kid because I'm always carrying him. Oh, yeah. And oh, it's bad. I, my left arm. it, so I don't recommend. My left arm is dead. I, my my favorite unexpected post kids that I didn't talk need. is like converse is like um, dad injuries. Yeah. I didn't expect that to be like this powerful form of conversation. Yeah. Be like, you know, you'd be talking about politics, aren't you? Like, but so you you have a kid. What what hurts? Yeah, I had like, no oh, idea. Back. But that's what I mean. Is I used to get like elective fun massages. There's a cheap little place in our neighborhood, and now when I go, I'm like, oh, like I'm <laughs> using my body in ways that I never intended. I pick up a bag of cement. Yes, seven times, seven hundred times, squirming an hour. cement. Yes, and then when I sleep, 
she's often in the bed, and so I'm having to contort in ways to make sure that she is, you know, the queen of the bed, as she should be. But I'm sleeping in the shape of an ampersand to make sure that she's okay. What were we saying? Ooh, that's a good question. You host the show. Oh. Do you remember? <laughs> oh, yeah. A guaranteed experience. I actually had this idea while I was getting a massage. That's a fun little serendipity just for me. One of the challenges with spirituality and one of the challenges that I'm hearing in approaching the world in your fullness is that we want guaranteed experiences. We want things that work and work quickly and work now. We basically want the four loco of emotions. And rage is one of the easiest things to flip on. And it is sort of fun. You exist, to use some Eckhart Tolle, if you're angry, you exist. So all of your existential dread sort of goes away. You know, if you're just sitting quietly, as I imagine you were, you, you're faced with hard questions like, what is all of this? Who am I? What is reality? But if we're angry, we're like, my name's Dave. I'm from Baltimore. I like fried chicken. Those kids in those hats were given a raw deal or, or whichever side of it you fall on. Um, so similarly, that's why I think things like LSD and stuff can be useful, especially in our culture, because they are guaranteed experiences that do mirror what it's like to be in a cave for six months in India. Like it can, it can give you the same sort of feeling, but for the Western audience. I feel like the reason people like those experience, those experiences is it also, it's a reminder of how thin all that. I'm Dave. I like fried chicken. Buddy. It's like, now we're in the zone. (laughs) A couple micrograms of something on a piece of paper. Yeah. Like that's it for you. Yep. Bye bye. You're You're not you anymore. Like that was how thin it was. Like that was how, that's why we have that to reheat how it every little day. There was. That's why we're looking at the news stories to get angry again and to remember who you are. That's why it's every World Series, every uh, election, everything. We're just going like, please give me me back. And you know what's weird? I don't even think we do like it. People, we like to not like it. There is an addiction to intensity that we feel and i don't even want to speak for everybody but certainly that i feel um that is pretty separate from even like or dislike something that i've had to face a little bit more about myself over the past couple of years is that my actual preferences are not what i thought they were that i'm much happier living a much quieter life than i believe is true for me we are sometimes the worst at getting what we need we're the worst at it but it's really hard like what the, we really the pull of the brightness you know of yeah. like feeling intensely and then you're shot i mean people don't the the weirdest thing about being on twitter and politics twitter which um i'm in and and have very complicated feelings about is that everybody agrees they don't like it almost everybody agrees that they don't like the emotional tenor of it most of the time but you find yourself coming back to it sometimes because you know, occasionally you do like pull the slot machine and you get something wonderful out of it. Like yeah. that's part of it. The variable rewards as Tristan Harris likes to say. Yeah. But then the other thing is that there just is – there is just a guaranteed intensity there and sometimes it's just hard to sit. I understand. My phone makes me sad. I tweet from my phone. Mm-hmm. My friend Pat Walsh had this great line where he said – I, I really got to take a, a break from drinking, I say, and look down and I'm pouring a drink. Yeah. Like, we're just so bad at what we actually need. I know, talk about Judaism, just because I got it from you guys, a Sabbath, a day without a phone mm-hmm. is the greatest life hack I think there's ever been. 
I actually had a friend that was like, I think this is why there's so many uh, Jewish uh, doctors and geniuses and lawyers. It's because like it's in their DNA that they've learned to take one day to not work. I, I know that's a little bit racially I, questionable. I, 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 I think you're overstating how observant many of us are. Hilarious. <laughs> I, I, think I, know, probably... I don't want to burst a bubble too much, but – not not such high Sabbath observation as he you. was. I, I completely agree. It's painting with too broad a brush. But he was saying that's how much he believes personally in a Sabbath. He's like, I think that's mm-hmm. what our brains need. And it's what we don't know that we need. Have you done LSD? Uh, yes. And what was that like? Where were you? How old were you? I, it's funny. I was thinking about whether or not I'd end up telling some version of the story. This was not LSD. I, I was in this case more botanically overwhelmed. But um, but I had one like very rough experience where part of the way I regrounded botanically overwhelmed was what, uh, poison part, of ivy? Way, part of the way I regrounded was I I was listening to your episode with Aziz Ansari. Oh, really? <laughs> At a moment when I really needed just some friendly voices in my ear. No shit. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Tell me the story. Uh, that one's a that's got too many parts to it. I don't agree. Um, <laughs> where were you? I was in a tent in this the desert. Your, uh, no. Was it, was it in like... a lush, foresty place full of spiders? Full of spiders. Full of spiders. That you didn't know about until you were No, I knew about them, but it was at that point, like, being in the tent was better than being outside of the tent, and the spiders were just going to be there having this experience with me. Holy shit. Spiders okay. is like the cliche bad trip. I don't feel that strongly against spiders. Really? Yeah. Nice. Um, in terms of the, the bigger psychedelics question, uh, what... Are you this stuff, as answer? I've been I'm, now, I'm like a boring dad, unfortunately. But um, well, fortunately, in other ways. But the experience of that mostly for me has been a, like an actual identity breaking. This sense of this very powerful sense that the firmness. I'm so sorry, the firmness with which I understood me to be me was just pure illusion and ridiculous. Yeah. And this stuff goes away really, really fast and really easily. Right. And just knowing that, just knowing that is true about myself. That's all you need. Is actually a lot. That's exactly, we could tell trip stories. That's not the point. That's why I've said this many times, but people are confused sometimes about the profundity of psychedelics. And I'm like, yes. it's not what you see. It's not what the spiders said or didn't say to you through the tent wall. <laughs> it's that you saw that with which you see. You see the, the the lowest level of your identity functioning. Everything goes away, and yet you're still there. And that is the mystery of the universe. I, I will tell say. you about my favorite. Um... <laughs> I can't believe Aziz I can't believe and I brought you back. Huh? I can't believe Aziz and I brought you back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't so far gone that I couldn't figure out how to put on a podcast. I was yeah. just visually very overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, I had this one um, experience where I got very confused about who I was or wasn't. Yeah. And one of the things I remember thinking, which is like my one like real trite, like this is what everybody comes back from these experiences thinking, but like the 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 sense of actually knowing it is different. But how much energy goes in to the constant work to police the boundaries between the set of stuff that has been defined as me and all the other stuff. And like, obviously it used to be that stuff and one day will be that stuff, but the amount of energy, like I'm consuming plants and drinking water and like taking care of things to just like keep up this idea that my stuff is different than all the other stuff. Yeah. It just, it was both ridiculous and so obviously true. Yeah. 
like so obviously true that on some level it was all just the same stuff i love what you're saying that's like i've never forgotten it i mean this is when i was much younger but um but it it just it's hard when you've it just like alters your sense of the whole thing a little bit it makes it all it adds a little bit of ridiculousness into it i love what you're saying if we were a youtube clip show that would have been the youtube clip (laughs) i love what you just said the way that i calm myself down i i just worked the the past three weekends so i've been sort of like talk about comedian mode i go into like a nocturnal mode Mm -hmm. as well and then i'm coming back and now i'm trying to go to bed at like 10 so i can get up with the baby at five uh from time to time i just want to shout out that val does it as well um so now i'm trying to go to bed earlier than i want to and i'm stuck sort of with my thoughts and your anxious repetitive thoughts and those thoughts are basically also sort of working this like unagreed upon agenda to like reaffirm your shit matters, your opinions matter, mm-hmm. your feelings and your and your thoughts are the most important thing in the world. And if I can share one thing, which I've shared a million on this pod, but I'll share it a million more, Eckhart Tolle says to watch your thoughts. And it, it's really trippy, but it's really, you don't need to do too much study. If you can do this, if you can watch your thoughts impartially, meaning you have the fucked up, weird, worst case scenario thought goes by. Then you have the weird egoic glory thought goes by. Here's the repetitive anxiety about that business meeting you have. Here's, oh no, uh, how's it going to go with Ezra tomorrow? If you can just sit there and just watch it without judging it, because this is what Eckhart Tolle says. If you start having opinions about your thoughts while you're trying to observe your thoughts, he goes, the thinkers just come in the back door and Mm -hmm. it split itself in two and now it's thinking about its thoughts, which is a great trick that because it wants you to yeah. do this for some reason will kabat-zinn who's a, a buddhist teacher son of um john kabat-zinn um i went to a dharma talk he gave once and he's a really really brilliant and thoughtful guy and i remember him saying that if the way these the way this kind of thinking works worrying about tomorrow mm-hmm. right worrying about what's going to happen in the meeting if somebody gave you a vr rig and put it on you and you began seeing this whole thing play out where you like, you know, you were at the meeting and it went bad and you were unprepared and everybody and you take it and be like, that was that was nuts. That was crazy. Then it happens in your head and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Right. The difference between having some separation from it, recognizing that it's right. some kind of external imagery machine. If you and knew it was inside v- of it. That's exact. That's I the just, whole I thing. I love that distinction. It's all been wrapped up in what you just said. And to tie it back to how I introduced it, that's where my anxiety goes away is in non-resistance. You go, there's my anxiety. You're just looking at it uh, like it doesn't work that well. For like, me. <laughs> no, dude, it's not easy. It takes me an hour, two hours. Sometimes oh, so, I, I might yeah. be lying awake, but it's different instead of like a heart jacked because you have to not even judge your inability to fall back asleep. You have to not even judge your inability to stop worrying. You just go. It, it's like looking at a river from above and your anxiety is just another leaf on that river, but you can't judge it. You go, there it is. Pete's being Pete. The VR is playing what the VR is playing. But you need to go like, that's not me. But we've all been uh, possessed by the thinking brain and thinking that that's all we are. I'm a super obsessive thinker. I and it's a very so a lot of lot of stuff here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, One is that I got I got developed a much more serious meditation practice over the last like, let's call it six years. And I did it initially because I wanted to deal with stress from starting box like just running that and and growing it and everything was really hard yeah and it didn't help my stress at all what it did was a little bit in the way that psychedelics can 
was it actually, but in, in a very different way, um, showed me how little control I had over my own mind. That was shocking to me and a, and a bit disturbing. But I had so little capacity That's to decide goes, what I was talking, we say, what I was I thinking about. I think, but you might as well say, like, I beat my heart or I breathe. Right. It's like you don't. But, but so here was the next step of, for me, and this happened at that same silent meditation retreat I talked about earlier. I was there, and I had an amazing experience there, and I really do recommend to people if they feel it's something they want to try to try it. Um, and we can talk about the other beautiful parts of it. But I did have a couple loops that kept replaying, and I was so frustrated by them, not angry at myself. I just, you know, here I was, it was like day three or four. Like I felt much slower, calmer, brighter. That feeling of like bright mind was really cool. And so I was in one of the meetings with the teachers and I was giving this whole sort of thought thinks themselves frustrated riff and, mm. you know, saying that it felt like I like had the subroot, like I was a, like my head was this like company and there was like some bureaucracy that was still like running an old, like running an old product that we decided to move on from, but I couldn't get them to stop like running the subroutine. Right. And it was such a good riff and people liked it and they laughed. And the teachers was like, yeah, it sounds like you've decided to think those thoughts you keep thinking are not really you. Like, what if you just decided they were? Like, what if you like didn't keep trying to resist them? Mm. And it was all at once a really amazing – and it was a weird thing deep in the retreat where I had a lot more ability to play with my own mind. Like, I felt much more capable of, like, turning around how I thought about something or playing with a kind of meditation because, like, the, like, it was just a lot – you're just much more in that space. And – I, I, it left me like really not knowing what to think about it, though, right? It went a little bit from the thoughts to think themselves to, well, that that's a way of getting very frustrated at your thoughts, hmm. right? I have no control over this. I hate things I have no control over. I know I have basically no control over anything, but I still hate it. Right. Um, and then from this other direction of, well, maybe the thoughts thinking themselves are there for a reason, right? Like that's a thing that keeps you safe or – and it's not by any means gone away. Like I'm still a pretty obsessive thinker and I wish I could put things down that sometimes I can't. But it is – I don't know. I like switch back and forth a lot between that issue of I can't control my own mind and that's terrifying versus um, I'm not supposed to be able to control my own mind like any more than I am controlling my own biome. Right. Like they're all just doing stuff yeah. and I'm some emergent property of that stuff. Yeah. And like what I am is actually a hard thing to even locate and yet – like I'm clearly here doing this podcast with you and I wrote a book that isn't about any of these things and is being sold in a very weird way right now. And right, so, and here right, we are. Right. Yeah, no, I, I've heard that flip before too. I, I, spiritual teachers can sort of have it both ways, which is sort of fun and it feels a little bit like a hedge maze where we can, which one, which one's going to get you there. Do you want to yield and say, of course I am spirit and I am Pete to put it in spiritual terms. You have to own both. So Alan Watts, who's my homeboy, told my other homeboy, Ramdas, he said, uh, Ramdas's name is Richard. He goes, Richard, you're too uh, attached to emptiness. <laughs> and, it, and it blew Ramdas's mind. It was one of those changing things where it's like, you, uh, Kabir wrote, I believe it was Kabir. It's either Kabir or Hafiz. Uh, it was like, I, I walk through the market, but I'm not a purchaser. So you can go through the story of Ezra and not buy into it, but you're still in the market. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that is the tension. Of course. That's why, like, it's like saying I'm not in the spacesuit. I am in the spacesuit. I'm in the Pete program. And that's not a flaw. It's a very 
malevolent universe if I'm like, this is just a weird trap that I'm in, or we can look at it, I know you're not an optimist, but with a bend towards benevolence and being like, yeah, I'm here to either play or learn or experience, whatever whatever you want to say, what it's like to be Pete. So if I'm pushing away Pete and I refuse his lessons and I say, even Pete's bad shit is all just mist, it's all vapor, it's all nothing, I'm really just consciousness, then you are sort of missing out on the point of being Pete. So you have to yeah. find that balance between going, I know I'm really, and I'm saying this, this is my uh, perspective. I believe myself to be the loving consciousness that is watching the, all this stuff unfold impartially. It's just a passing show. And yet the passing show is not a flaw because it's happening. Yeah. It's and so frustrating that, hearing, um, particularly I feel like I hear from Buddhist teachers because I read a lot of like Buddhist and Taoist philosophy. Mm. And you'll hear a question asked or internally to these things posed and they'll just come out with saying like the exact opposite thing that you thought everybody was saying. Yeah. And I, it took me a long time to realize that, and it's not that I've put this into play because I just still like read the stuff, but you can't think your way through it. That's right. And so when you try to, when you try to re, when you try to put it in more directly literal terms, right? If you are reading a book about Buddhist philosophy, you are just going to be reading like a very coarsened thing. Because as far as I can tell, just a lot of these are some very lionized of you. <laughs> a lot of these are some they're like a new like they're an experience you have to have. That's right. They're not a like an idea. He who you have speaks to does not know, and he who yeah, knows right. has there no need go. to speak. And what's fucking crazy? That's like you're just identity is like identity activates under threat. That's your much shorter version of my That's long. Right. That's right. My long, <laughs> my long riff. No, my long riff. I've been the you've been the one with the tasty little morsels. But like knowing that we can't think about it is a thought that can help us get to it, which is crazy. But like, so the idea of being attached to enlightenment or attached to that place that you were in, at least partially during your silent retreat where you have the bright mind and, and you, you had the clarity to be like, it's all stuff I'm defending. I'm defending a, a mountain of garbage, basically. <laughs> we can get there through thoughts. I believe it's called yana yoga. It's using the mind to beat the mind. And of course, that's very appealing to people like you and I that like to communicate and read and talk. Um, but it's just what fucking Pete's doing. And isn't that fun? Look at Pete go. That's what I like about your view on this. So that kind of isn't that fun. I, I once went to a um, uh, workshop retreat kind of thing with a, 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 Buddha, a Zen teacher named Paul Haller, who's really brilliant. And his whole thing that I've just, I, I think about all the time is he was, he was saying, uh, you know, you think about something just at the end, just append. Is that so? Just, is that so? Is that so? And I loved that because it wasn't like, your thought is wrong and you shouldn't have it. Like, stop yeah. thinking. Like, yeah. thinking is suffering, right. right? It was just, is that so? Being, like, maybe it is. It could be so. Being attached to... It's just light. Unattachment, being attached to attachment. It, it's all not it. it it's it's the, the enlightened person seems to be the person that's just like, ah, so. There, there it is. It's what's happening. That's what I like. He told a, um, he told a story that I just love, um, and I'll probably butcher it uh trying to remember it but you know you don't want to be too attached to the original way you that's right story, you know it's what's happening they told the Guess story what? this is the only version of the story because <laughs> it's happening right now uh it's apparently an old I, I did find this it's an old zen parable but so uh 
there is a Zen monk who or monk who lives on the outside of the village. And one day, the fisherman's daughter. I know the um, story. Oh, you do. I'm going to chime uh, in. I'm going to do great. So you'll, you'll 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 tell it better than I do. No, I I'm won't. Sure. So the fisherman's daughter, who was having an affair with the shopkeeper or whatever, gets pregnant, and people come and say, you know, like who's the father? And she says, it's the the monk. So everybody says, everybody like rushes at him and is furious and say like, you you fathered this child. How dare you? Um, and he's supposed to be so. a holy man. Yeah. Um, and they say, well, you have to take care of it. And so, like, he says, is that so? Yeah. And so they give him the kid, and he, like, goes around and is alms begging, and he, you know, asks for alms for him and the kid. And um, and then, eventually, the woman, overcome by guilt, confesses, and it was a shopkeep, and, and everybody comes to him and says, oh, my God, you're such a holy man, so wonderful. You just took this child without complaining. You are a saint. And he just says, is that so? That's right. I just like that. The only <laughs> detail I would have included in the version that I heard was that the kid was, like, 13 when, when she confessed. So she he... He was even unattached. It's almost that scary unattachment. He yeah. let the kid go back. And as much as I like that story, I definitely would not live my life that way. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. Like about that whole story, I have a is that so feeling? But it's an you know, it's worth thinking about. There's a great line in um uh the 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 Tao, which I only got anything out of in the last couple of years, but just like what that I think about all the time, what different success or failure. Mm. And just sometimes there's a clear difference, but sometimes you're totally wrong about which goes, one was good for you. This goes back to our uh, Twitter makes us unhappy. Ramdas has this great line where he's like, you need to ask yourself, does meeting your needs make you happier than not meeting your needs? Of course, we're not talking about base human needs, but like I just got this new espresso machine and I was so embarrassed as I was watching my thoughts last night that I was like, the steam won't turn on. And I spent so much time. I And again, I, I was proud of myself to just watch it, but I was like... This is the workings of a madman. <laughs> like, clearly, my brain just wants to, uh, I would say, wants to exist, but we could also just make it more simple and say it just wants to worry. That's one of the things Ramdas said to me as he points at his head. You're worrying about something, and you're like, should I do this? Should I do that? What about this? What about that? And he pointed at his head and he just goes, entertainment. Because <laughs> he couldn't talk very much, yeah. but he nailed it, just points at his brain and goes, entertainment. And I thought of that last night. I was like, the steam? On your espresso machine? Like, what the fuck are you doing? You're entertaining yourself. You're jerking off. You're whistling in the dark. Whatever you want to say. It's just nonsense. And letting it go. So the monk is obviously an extreme example. And the ego would like us to say, well, we can't do that. I can't do that. Someone can't come and say, uh, Leela's actually the son of the barber. And the barber, I, I'm not going to go, ah, so I'm not there. Right, and I don't also, think you should in be. a lot of things, I don't but think we should do be. it for like, I don't feel that way about whether or not we pass a universal health care. I have a not. strong view on what we should do there. Absolutely not. And but there are little moments where Pete and Ezra can go, so or it's what's happening. Uh, there's another version of a similar sentiment that I am really going to butcher because I've only heard it once. But it's on, Alan Watts tells a story. It's another Taoist story, I believe, or a Zen story. I mix them up a lot uh, about. Like it's it's like a guy and he's a farmer and and he gets like seven horses show up one day and everyone's like what good luck and then one of the horses like gets startled and kicks him and breaks his legs and he's like what bad luck and the guy keeps going like is it basically like <laughs> what good luck and he goes is it and then oh what bad luck is it and because he was in the hospital with his broken legs, like, I'm going to make my own version. A meteorite hits his farm. And they yeah. go, what good luck you were in the hospital. And he's like, is it? And basically, you can improvise your own version of the story. But it was like, everything 
is just what's happening to the Dallas, to the to the pure perspective from the outside. Like the stories end, movies fade out, and we go happily ever after. But really, everything is everything. Everything is can be has potential to yeah, be. It's both. a it's a fun one of the places has moved me in my own work is. There are a bunch of things where I feel pretty uncertain in that exact way of will this be good or not, right? I think it will, but how, I think it will, but how could you possibly know? Yeah. And then there are things where I'm sure it would be good. I mean, one reason I think I've become more committed to veganism and animal rights issues is I'm just – I am as sure as I am about anything that torturing fewer chickens would be good. Yeah. Like we could feed people other ways. We don't have to torture so many animals. Whereas a bunch of other stuff that I used to feel very strongly about, like how do we tax capital gains, I still have views on, but I just am not exactly sure. Um, right. And I don't know. I think there's some things in life that you can be pretty sure you're reducing suffering. Right. And a lot of things in life that have that dynamic that you're talking about with the horses, I feel like this is very true in your own life. I mean, my God, the question of whether or not something is going to be good for or bad for you, whether or not a promotion is going to make your life better or worse, the nut – like. How right we are about that stuff is terrible. Like our batting average is terrible. Like look at – we're here in LA. I don't get the sense most super famous people are incredibly happy. No. It doesn't look great. No. Like how hard do you fight to get there and then fight to not be knocked off the perch? Well, that's what Thomas Merton says. You've climbed a ladder and it was against the wrong wall. I mean that's exactly what's going on. I'm telling you that as somebody who's – I'd like to think I'm climbing several different ladders. <laughs> but like one of them I know don't believe the hype. Like don't believe it. Like play it, but like it's not going to work. And and I've had big highs and I've had big lows. That's why in my book I was very happy to report that the second season of my TV show was like one of the darkest uh depressive times of my life. Not because of the TV show, but specifically because the TV show isn't the cure. That you think it is. Look to people who win the lottery for other examples yeah. of this. Look to people who like have all their dreams come true. When Michael Jordan started playing baseball, I know we're not sports people, but I was like, of course, it's never there. It's never there. That's a great example. You can of that. be the greatest basketball player in the world, but it, does Dad love me? Like that's why we were so drawn to that. It was a modern day parable of like you can have all the money in the world, and guess what? You know what? In the spiritual people community, people say when someone's rich and famous, they go, heavy karma. That's what they say because <laughs> that's a fucking – and I'm not super rich or super famous, but I'm like I deal with that karma when you have – and I watch Val. Val was a teacher before uh, we met and now she doesn't have to do that and I'm watching her deal with the new problems. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many multi-billionaire, whatever, super successful people that I know that are obsessed with recycling. Obsessed with recycling. It is a trend that I have no because guess what? You need a problem and you need a cause and there's something wrong. Also, if you got that high up the ladder... That's because you've gotten very used to thinking about problems. Yeah, that's probably true. Right? You've intensively trained yourself. That's right. To it be wired together and it fired together. Right? Now yeah. you are a and problem now it's like solver. You've got a, I mean, I felt that happen to me, actually, where it just mm. – you got – like that intensity doesn't go away. That's so like, interesting. What's adaptive and I have this whole You've given me more, my, more compassion. I was like, look, they're not happy. And you're like, no, the mechanism the by which they learn to survive I, is now playing. I had a them. whole period in my That's why um, I can't stop thinking because I've I, my whole life I got out of whatever I wanted to get out of by overthinking. And now I'm like, stop overthinking. Yeah. It's like you. Yep. Your success is because of your neuroses. 
And now you're like, please go away, neuroses. When yeah. really, and I heard you doing this, we should be like, thank you, neuroses. You've protected me and you've you've given me a career and a life and, and a functioning brain. But it's hard to send them off like Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah. I think the thing I've become just much more conscious of as I've gotten older, and I saw it in myself, but I see it in others too. But the good of everybody is also the bad of everybody. It's always going to be the same for people. You know, you're a smart person who thinks a lot, Things deeply, you can't turn it off. I remember I listened to the Elon Musk interview with Joe Rogan, and that went viral because Elon Musk smoked a joint or whatever. Which is why I'd like to give you this big smoke. (laughs) Which is why why this 5-MEO DMT is here on the table. That's right. That wasn't What is that called? 5-MEO, right? Yeah. Do I have that right? I don't even know. Um, Anyway, the the toad one. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Scrape it off this glass. Yeah. um, It's in in, uh, the the, uh, Pollen's book. Pollen. what was I just talking about? I'm so sorry. You were saying we were talking about recycling and the neuroses. The good of people, and good of everything of is the bad of everybody. Elon Musk. Oh, Elon Musk. So Elon Musk was. No, in. thank you. That was great. Um, so I'm in that that Joe Rogan interview with him is actually I think pretty interesting. And in the middle of it, at some point, Rogan says to him something like, "Man, it must be awesome to be you." Like just like sitting here coming up with cool inventions and dating Grimes or whatever. Says the guy who's a comedian. I d- I've done Rogan and I do a podcast. I'm in my pajamas right now. Joe Rogan's looking pretty good to Elon Musk, I'm sure, is all I'm saying. So Musk just says back, you can't turn it off. Yeah. And he just says it's a couple times looking really sad because you can see it on the YouTube. He says, I can't stop thinking about these things i can't turn this part of me off like right. it looks good from the outside but i can't turn it off yeah and it was not said like if you watch that interview like elon musk is a sad person which i think has always been true like you can you always been kind of obvious you go back there's this rolling stone profile of him you know and you just he comes off very lonely um but i just remember looking at that and being like yeah i'm sure you can't like yeah. i can't and i'm not you and i remember when i had um Dr. Katz, Jonathan Katz on my podcast, we were talking about this phenomenon of of not being able to turn it off. And the weird twist is, would you have it any other way? And I think, like, I'm very interested in it's like, Elon, I have an app and it can turn off the overanalytical part of your brain. Do you turn it on? Maybe if we can do it on a timer, I'm sure you'd like a few hours. But by and large, I bet you would like to be Elon Musk most of the time. As yeah, well, this is the old, right, the thing about you get a wish and it's always that the wish comes too true, right? That's, that's, that's how what I've been trying to works. say. That's why I was like, how many parables do we need where the devil's like, I'll give you, uh, you can be the best fiddle player in the world. <laughs> we we need to realize, sorry to preach, we already have it because we already are it and everything else is is ancillary. It's secondary. It's It's just a game. And that's really helpful to remember. You are it. You are aware. This is it. I, I people say this I, that I was reading this thing the other day about the debate between the people who think that uh, to be able to experience more non-duality, you have to really work at it versus it needs to be effortless. Mm. And I just love that that's a debate. That's hilarious. That you are it. It's right there versus like no, you really like this is really hard to do. It's why most people do not experience it and well, do not experience it easily. I'm like, of course. Like we can't even agree. Third, like, are you working at this? Or that is just, that is like, the essence perfect. of comedy. <laughs> that is why I'm like, it's not an error. That is funny. That is the cosmic joke. Yeah. It's the da- divine dance, and it's hilarious. It's a joke. We we played part of the third patriarch of Zen, which I love, and they go, the great way is not hard, nor is it difficult. I think that's so essential. It goes like, if you're having that debate, 
you've lost it. The, the answer is quietly looking at a flower. The, the answer is trying to find the space in between the words that I'm sharing with you now. It's in the... It, but it, I, feel, I feel like this is one of those things where it's only that way from the other side. I hear what you're saying. So in I'll, I'll use a slightly different analogy on this. Um, there's a beautiful line because I do explanatory journalism work. Um, it, maybe it was Howard Feynman or someone, but... Uh, I'm forgetting who it was exactly, but talked about – but Howard Feynman or somebody discussed this idea that they don't want what is on this side of comp- – what was it? Sorry, I'm getting this so wrong. That They basically made this argument that they want – they would give their life. They would give their life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Not the simplicity on this side of complexity. You're right. The simplicity on that side of complexity. Everybody that listens to this podcast is going to know that I'm going to say, given the choice between the journey and the destination, the ego will always choose the journey. You don't – and I quote this all the time, the first step to waking up. I forget who said it. Forgive me. uh, But they're they're enlightened. They don't care. The first step is realizing you don't want to wake up. That is the first thing. When when I'm saying this, Ezra, this is another great Ramdas quote. He goes, if I know all this – I should be enlightened. He would say that late in life. He was like, I know everything. I, I, it's, it's been explained to me. What am I doing still here? And someone said to him, you're in school. Take the curriculum. That's when you get into the place where it's not an error. And there's stuff in the Bible and other holy texts where they're just like, this is how it works. You hit your head against the wall over and over and over. And then one day, because of your willingness and your surrender, this is what's called grace in a lot of different mm-hmm. faiths. It just clicks. It hits you not by your merit or your yeah. virtue. It just happens. And the the enlightened people that I've come across and studied, that seems to be their experience. And it usually comes from a night in a tent with spiders. I, I'm using your example to say it comes through some, as St. John of the Cross said, dark night of the soul. It comes through great suffering, great doubt. That's why I think it's so weird that doubt has become the antithesis of faith, which is really faith is supposed to be a uh, a comfortability with being uncertain, mm-hmm. when really we've made it into absolute rock-steady certitude, and doubt is the enemy of it. Doubt is the dance partner in faith. People of faith are supposed to be comfortable in their doubt, knowing that there are forces, uh, and I don't mean angels and stuff, I'm just saying there's something going on that we do not know what that is... Uh, people in my <laughs> side of things believe are pulling you towards those things. Like you are making this micro progress that you can't even understand. And I'm hoping, man, I have two th- I'm hoping one day it clicks. And then I'm also aware that the day that I die will be another day, just like today where I have to wake up. And as I'm opening the curtains, holding my baby, I go, yes, 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 yes. Let's say yes to today. Yes to this. Yes to the pain. Yes to the doubt. Yes to the Iowa caucus or whatever the fuck is going on. Yes, yes, That went poorly. Yes. (laughs) That's what I mean. That happened (laughs) yesterday. That's where we are today. But I'm like, can we say yes to it? Meaning I'd like to wake up and just be like a bird or a flower. But I, so far for 40 straight years, I've woken up as Pete, but he's a little bit better. (laughs) That feels rabbinical. The two ladders, I'm always saying. It's the guy that's still moving. It doesn't matter how high you are. Are you still moving forward? That is the more virtuous person, according to the rabbi. It's not the guy that's Mm -hmm. higher, the guy that's low. It's whoever's still making that little progress. And using your doubt and your uncertainty 
as have tea with it and yeah. fucking dance with it. I know nothing of Awakening, but sometimes uh, around these sorts of discussions, I think about. I used to play video games a lot. Um, I less love now, where but you're going. I, I, I used to love them. What was your game? And oh, all kinds of games. But in this period, I'm thinking about Street Fighter. Yes, and who's your guy? Who did I play in Street Fighter? You feel like a Blanca. No, I think I played Guile a lot. Ooh, yeah, Guile. Guile. Very um, American. And I played a lot of Chun-Li because she had that cool heel tap thing. Yep. But that said, I remember as you would start a video game, you'd always go through this th- same thing where you basically started as a button masher. Yeah. Right? You didn't know how to play it. And you could win a lot that way. And I yeah. always remember when you would start learning. Zangief the- Low Roundhouse. You exactly. You win the whole game with that. You, as you started learning, you would get worse. You had this kind of valley of now you were trying to do things and failing. Yeah. And then if you persevered through the valley, you were good at the game effortlessly. Yeah. Right? It was you just like a, a master. Pure, it was just a pure like the synapses fire and you do the six part combo or whatever yes. it was. Yes. But I always felt that that was a good metaphor for a lot of things in life where in some ways it's harder when you're working at it. That scared me. <laughs> A lot of these things get a lot harder when you start working at them, Mm. and that's super discouraging. Yeah. Right? You're actually okay with this, and now you're working at it, and now all of a sudden you realize you can't – you thought your brain was fine, but you actually can't watch 10 breaths go by. You are killing me because it's a Richie Rohr point that I love. He's like, uh, the spiritual journey isn't about learning. It's about unlearning. So one of my favorite things that Jesus uh, was reported to say – was that uh, about becoming like little children, like that little children. So you have an 11-month-old baby. That was a very profound spiritual experience for me because she doesn't have what you're talking about in your book. She doesn't have a political party. She has, she's not even aware of her, her, her gender or her race or her location or anything, and yet she is. So that is how I interpret that is like we're grown people. So born again just got so fucking ruined. I know. I, I'm aware. Like you say, I'm born again, which – Maybe it can still be beautiful, but often it just means like, look out, this person's like got the fervor of a new convert and and they're going to be weird to talk to at a party. But the idea of being born again, becoming a child again, beginner's mind is what a Buddhist would say. There's So there's more, less politically charged ways of putting it. But returning to a state of simple wonder and presence that kids have, that's unlearning. I want, I would love, I'm in the process of trying to unlearn and I've said this a million, but one of my mantras that I say all all day is when I catch myself being uh, rigid or or having preferences or um, noticing patterns, just constantly noticing patterns, the patterns that my brain thinks are correct are so stupid. The example I always use is my father knew one fire chief that he saw not working on a Tuesday, and my father would always be like, fire chiefs have a lot of time off. And I'm like, <laughs> I do that too. I yeah. see one fire chief on a Tuesday, and I go, they get a lot of time off. I don't know. Whenever I catch myself doing that, which is every single fucking day, I just go, I'm willing, meaning Pete can't do it. My brain can't do it. My efforts can't earn it. But the same thing that set this into motion and thing is too limiting, the same this that set this into motion, consider this an empty slot. I'm trying to make the slot as empty as it can be for the next evolution of my consciousness. I can't get there. Dude, I've, I'm like, I feel like Ramdas. The things that I've read, I should be there. Go for a walk with me, and I'll go like, look at that girl. She's got hoop earrings. She's probably a doozy or, or, or a doozy. I mean like a ditz. <laughs> what an idiot. I'm an idiot. 
but I'm willing. That's all I can do. Richard Rohr is always saying surrender and humility are the cornerstones of faith. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter the thoughts that you carry around in your head, the identity of your sect, of your religion, patience and humility. And then the way that the truth comes to you is through pain and stuff. I'll say, though, that um, I struggle a lot with how this stuff maps onto political change. Right, this is where I have a lot of. Tension. You brought politics back up, just so you I know. I did. Um, I was going to ask how you lost your virginity. You brought it back to the old oh, red and blue. Here you are, assuming I've lost my virginity. <laughs> um, uh, you got to unlearn these. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, they just—it's hard to, and I know people do this work, and you know, there's Technon Han, who is nominee of the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King, and I read all this. I like, I try to understand it, but this question of like one acceptance and like loosely holding things and recognizing the complexity and you don't know. And then on the other hand, sure. It seems like a lot of shit is wrong and it does require a certain, you mean in the world, in the world, it does require a certain certitude to work with it. It does require an actual saying at a certain point, like this is wrong. Like we are going to fight it, like try to make it better. And it just does seem, it is a tricky thing. Politics often it is a very, very, very difficult thing to hold to some of the values and just habits of mind that I believe pretty deeply in the spiritual side of myself are the correct ones to move through the world with and also handle the political world with its dichotomies and its, you know, there are people who are right and wrong. And, yeah. Like it's, it's like spirituality feels like holding a straw and, you, and then you have to go to this like banquet where they're serving steak. Right. Or I, I sometimes think about uh, – the f- like the wisdom or the message encoded in that so many spiritual uh, masters, the way they practice their spirituality is through a lot of withdrawal from the world. Right now, many of them there there are many, of course, who who do it through a deep embodiment and 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 work in the world. Um, but I always wonder about the people who are saying on some level, yeah, like the way to the way to do this is be out, you know, be not talking to anybody for six months at a time, right? And like what that actually says about what it means to be in a world where you're not gonna get people health care you're not gonna right. do this by not talking to people for six months at a time it's a it's like a tricky space to walk through well that's why i think it's important to have examples like buddha and christ that are like they had their incubation period they had their time in the desert they both both buddha and christ had their like 40 days in the desert yeah. sort of story but then they enter into the arena. Yeah. And I think that's super important. And I, I mean, Christ was crucified largely for political reasons. I mean, he was threatening the Roman government with like a spiritual idea. But, you know, you go around saying like this money doesn't mean shit and like the image of Caesar doesn't mean shit. You know, people are going to get power is going to become upset. Mm-hmm. Money gets upset. But I mean, I, I, I'm with you. That is something that I deal with all the time. And clearly I'm not a person that wants to just retreat, like you stay as silly as it sounds. I, I feel like being a creative person and creating stuff, telling stories, telling jokes is a, a way of participating in the world. And of course, being active politically is a huge part of that. I mean, Ramdas is right up there. They used to, this is the 60, 70s, uh, 60s, 70s <laughs> when nuclear power was like a big thing and, and, and uh, Vietnam and all that stuff. And they would protest. Their big thing was like, don't get lost in the the hate. Don't don't lose yourself. Mm-hmm. Almost what we were back to what we were saying earlier. Getting lost in your identity and thinking that your identity 
as a liberal hippie is really fucking important. So they would have meetings for the Seva Foundation. Seva is a spiritual word for like helping. And they wouldn't talk about serious things without wearing Groucho Marx glasses. Uh-huh. And it was a way of saying, like, let's not take ourselves too seriously. Because as soon as we are capital P people, capital H helping, like we start to believe our own shit. So the way that they would protest is they would actually try and do it lovingly, which I even as I'm saying that, it sounds so steam cleaned and bullshit and stupid. But I do kind of sometimes think that that can be missing from the conversation. Can we have compassion for the other side? Can we see that we're protesting against another aspect of ourselves? Yeah, or even if it's not ourselves. I mean, the 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 flip of this, right, is that it's easy to dismiss the efforts to keep yourself a little bit detached, but then you look at what it means to have that kind of very intense attachment and what it does to people in the political political space and what it tends to do to people is that it makes them incapable of persuasion mm. because they're so locked into who they are. And you see this on Twitter all the time that all they want to do and can do is tell other people how wrong they are and like draw the boundaries really sharply. And we just know, we know from reams of social science that you can't persuade anybody that way. Mm. Like as soon as you become a threat to somebody else, they are never going to listen to you. That's right. And so one of the things that I struggle with a lot right now, and I know I have brought this back to politics, but this is a different type of politics I usually get to talk about. But I struggle with what seems to me to be an almost anti-politics form of politics where people are not trying to figure out how to build a bridge to somebody such that they can reach them so they can convince them, enlist them, find a point where even if you don't agree, you can work together. They're like trying to burn bridges to people to, to explain like, those are the people who are not on our side. They're not in our group. They're not part of our identity, and we will not work with them. And you can't even like say a nice word about them because if so, that means you're endorsing everything they've ever said, including the worst five things they've ever said. And so like on the one hand, you can't be too – so pulled back that you're not actually participating in trying to make the world a better place. And on the other hand – I often think that the certainly like the aesthetic and the impulse of getting so deep in your own certitude that you're certain who's right and who's wrong and that the wrong are like evil, even whether or not it's true, it's deeply unhelpful. Yeah. Like there's no politics that works that way in the long run. How are I have a hard time even doing this on this podcast, even though this is not a political podcast, but it is a thought experiment podcast. I get nervous not a political person. Like I, I said, I give money to Bernie. It is not going to be trending on Twitter that Pete Holmes endorses Bernie Sanders. That is not a story. It's just, and I'm happy to be in that shadow part of this conversation. I, I don't want the spotlight. Now, that being said, when I say things like if I was raised in, uh, I can't even think of a state, let's just say Kansas, and I was an hour from the police, I'd have a shotgun. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like even saying that, like Chappelle kind of touched that on, when he he has this farm in Ohio, and you know you're in the city. I tried to do this bit about like I'm anti-gun, but I'm not entirely anti-gun because if someone broke into my house, I call the cops. And what is a cop but a, an Uber driver with a gun? <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not trying to diminish their role. Saying yeah, no, I understand. It's a, it's a. I'm I like, see what you're doing. You have a gun. A Can joke. you come over and shoot him? <laughs> I don't want the moral load. Can you do it? And then I've been doing the bit on stage. I had to stop doing it because I could just tell 
either they liked it in the wrong way or they didn't like it in the wrong way. But nobody could hear as soon as I said gun, as soon as I said I'm anti-gun, but I'm not entirely anti-gun. I could feel people just go, remembering the last shooting or uh, I was just in uh, Nashville. Maybe there's some concealed carries in the room that aren't enjoying it. I don't know. I can't call it. But I knew that it was even just kind of experimenting with the idea that even though I'm anti-gun, my taxes pay for a lot of guns that are shooting a lot of people in foreign soil. That's not anti-gun. And I call cops and they have guns. You get it. But I'm saying, how are you with those experiments? When, When we talk about like immigration, right? I hate what's happening. I'm against a wall. Kids in cages is very close to the – I mean, it is it is the top of the list. Kids dying of dehydration. What the fuck is going on? I'm going to be very much hoping that that comes up in a pointed way in defense of our country because it's a fucking embarrassment and it's a travesty, right? I do go like, well, what are the people that are saying we need a wall thinking? And even saying this, I'm like, uh-oh, I'm worried you hear like NPR sometimes does a, an okay job talking about towns where like so many immigrants come in and the town starts to feel their identity starts to be threatened, right? I'm trying to understand. How are you with understanding the other side of the issues? I mean, I'd like to think I'm good at it. Yeah, uh, it's my job. What it, what is the other side of I want a wall? Be a guy who wants the wall. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot. I will say in the book a lot about this and and about demographic change. I'm not going to read a book. I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. No, to be fair, that's the the that's book the is normal. called why why we're polarized. Why we're polarized. Yeah. Um, it is like one of the deepest forms of political reaction people have, and like in every society, that this feels like it's changing, and I don't like it. And we have a lot of crust we put on that and a lot of intellectualization we put on that. And in politics, particularly around the immigration issue, we'll end up having these debates about do immigrants lower native-born workers' wages? Okay, they don't. But like maybe they lower the wages just of white college dropouts. And, and it's like you realize at a certain point we're not really talking about wages where people are finding ways to justify – that they instinctually don't feel good about what's happening. And we actually don't have good ways even to discuss that, even though it's an extraordinarily... Are we back to counting do- dots? Huh? Back, back to counting dots. Yeah, it's a back to counting dots, but it's also just very deep. I mean, I, in the book, I have a very, in a way, sympathetic account of what Mitch McConnell did stopping Merrick Garland. And you just, I don't think you can do politics well. I have this view, so I'm not a journalist who comes from like what you call like the objective standpoint, um, which I don't really even believe is a thing. Mm. But my view is that in order to be able to take the positions I take, I have to, to be able thing. to argue the other position as well as its best people can argue, which means I have to be able to inhabit it. And so a lot of like my podcast work is about I bring people on to understand their mental models of the world. Mm. Like, how do you see this? Like, and so I can like spin up my little simulations of people I don't agree with, like in my head, but like, how would they see it? And if you can't do that, I don't want to say you can't have your views. You can, I mean, it's a free country. You can do what you want, but you, you really don't know if you can reject that. Now, like on the immigration issue. That gives me a lot of hope, by the way. That's that, that was the answer that I was really hoping you would say is that you are free and that you feel free to say, let's become an expert in the other side. Oh yeah, I Otherwise, feel free to do I'm that. I'm afraid we're just counting dots. But and that's going... that. I ha- in order to do that, I have to occupy like the journalist identity, and I do recognize. I don't think it's wrong. People who say that 
they operate with a lot of fear and they're worried about what they can say. Like there are certain things that I like would be very careful about how I touched it and said it. And I don't, I also don't, by the way, think that's wrong to have to take a lot of care. Yeah. But yeah, I think that there is not nearly enough premium on understanding. I will, but you can talk yourself like you can talk yourself in every position in this argument. What I will say is that one place I think people have a lot of correct frustration and it's not well described in this argument is that it's only some perspectives that get a tremendous amount of work to understand them sympathetically. Mm-hmm. And so there's like this huge effort to sympathetically understand the downscale white Trump voter. Um, and so like African-American um, like writers have pointed out a lot of times, this that effort did not go into understanding black voters who supported um, Louis Farrakhan, like mm-hmm. not for president, but just like as a person. Yeah, that's interesting. And that – who we as extend, soon as it's a white man, we're kind of like, right, or like, it look like at, to be you, or like, look at the crack <laughs> epidemic and opioids. Yes, that's right. Right, the crack epidemic, it was cultural pathology, and it was a punchline, and a punchline, yeah. And then opioids, crackhead like, is still a God. thing that we say, yeah. I, I, I see it on fa- Facebook, I'm like, how is that not a slur that we're just kind of like, so, what? Which is all to say that I, I think it is really important to have not just like real empathy, but argumentative and intellectual empathy to be able to see like where the other side of someone is coming from, but to also be careful to note, With like who do you have that for and who don't you? You know what we're doing? To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> I just saw it on Broadway, Ed Harris. The Aaron Sorkin one? Yes. Is it good? It was dope. And it was exactly this. So Ed Harris is, uh, I'm forgetting his name, it's Atticus Finch. Mm-hmm. And Atticus Finch is trying really, really hard to empathize with um, the white racists and understand them. And then his, um, I guess you'd call her a maid, or I don't know what you'd say, but she's a black woman that lives and works for him. Uh, And she's like, yeah, that's really cool that you're making all this effort to understand the Klan. But who the fuck is trying to understand us? And everybody in the room is just like, oh, Jesus. And apparently Aaron Sorkin added a bunch of that in. I believe he did. That there, I was reading something about it the other day that the stuff he added to it has a lot to do with pushing back on – like that book is in some ways beloved because of Atticus Finch's like radical empathy for the white supremacists yeah, um, and how he turns that in, in pursuit of some justice. But that Sorkin is pushing back on that a bit in this version. It's that, what, it's you what know, happened. Like, who are you – I'm, I'm not super comfortable with Sorkin's pushback. Um depending on how it works but that argument is right the question is what happens i felt it was a lot easier for me to participate in politics in my 20s when i was more certain i knew who was right it's not like i have a question about who's right with kids in cages on the border yeah but i have a lot of questions about just like how do you operate in politics like how and do what you are your biases balance that i mean i feel like i have been guilty of being like let's understand the the like you said the the poor white trump supporting people and I'm like, Pete, is, is it because they look like you? Like, would I have been doing that with another group? And these are I, these are hard questions. To yeah, ask. I mean, every one of the things I think about in the debates over political correctness and Me Too and social change is that when you're trying to change the status quo, when you're trying to like move things in a revolutionary direction, there is a very, very deep backlash that emerges that is particularly centered around like let's understand the losers and the people who might be treated unfairly under this new regime mm-hmm. and that is completely reasonable and true and correct and i talk in the book about the need to treat loss on all sides as a real political feeling but at the same time were the were all of you giving as much attention to the losers under this regime 
right. under the status quo. And now you can you, that can just become a form of whataboutism that stops a conversation cold, mm. right? It doesn't make your view bad. If I say, well, you weren't extending that kind of empathy in the other direction, that doesn't mean the empathy is incorrect now. That's right. But you have to – it is a – empathy is a much tougher practice, I think, than people often give it credit for. Right. Because – And it's less instinctual than we think it is. And it's much less instinctual. It is we a lot easier like, for the people who either are, either are in power Dude. or have been like – put into your in-group somehow in the writer's room when we were talking about me too and jamie lee uh was one of the writers and we were talking about obviously louis had happened uh, louis ck and because we talked about it from every angle we obviously it emerged that we were like is there some empathy for louis and jamie made this really wonderful point where she was like don't I know you can sit with them, but sit with us. Yeah. Like, who's sitting with us? And it was a real click moment for me, and we tried to put that into the show, where I was like, yes, you can have empathy, but it's, it's Atticus Finch. Like, who are, are you just going with the people that look like you? A white male comedian was scandalized. Is it that hard for a bunch of white male comedians to be like, well, you know what I mean? Sit with the yeah. the marginalized. Sit with. Yeah, the I mean, people that... one of my colleagues at Vox um, wrote a great piece around all that, just saying there's so much fear about the art we could lose from Louis. What about all the art we lost from the people who were driven out right. by people like him? And the art that you'd gain by making a, a yeah. more stable environment. And That's it's not to say there will not be unfair losers; just to say that there always have been too. Right. Um, the the Louis. I, not, uh, I almost don't want to get into it, but I, I will in the spirit of the podcast say this, I just wanted, I wanted to the, say what Jamie said but yeah I one of you. the um, things that broke my heart so much about that story was I've been a big fan of the show um, as a lot of people were and what I Louis. loved about his show so much the show Louis. was its empathy was mm-hmm. his ability to put himself in the perspective of people who weren't him which didn't always work but the man heavy, he tried harder than most shows did show, uh, huh? the, the one where he dates the heavier woman that was yeah that was not a good example of that but i remember this one I didn't where see he it. i'm being i'm being honest i thought that was uh, well done i haven't seen that episode i remember um oh i think i'm thinking of something else towards the end of the show that had to do with like there was like I don't remember all the controversies around the show, and I, I wouldn't don't want to try to uh... try to play it. But I remember one in particular where it was about like Louis ended up following some kid home, and the kid is like like a total asshole, but is like getting beaten by the dad. And I just remember thinking like that was one of the most radical acts of empathy I've seen on TV. And what was happening with him was just such a tremendous inability. If you take him at his at its most generous, right, such a tremendous inability to see how what he was doing was going to affect other people, right? Right. Like even this person who in his art was capable of such radical acts of empathy was also capable of such total self-absorption in his life, which I know those things can of course go together and have in so many artists. But for some reason, like that part of it broke my heart because the part of him that I really admired was this deep empathy. Yeah. I, I, I've had so many more. One of the good things that's happened is I've had many more conversations. Uh, Laura bites my, I don't want to call her my opener, but the person I've been touring with, because she's a headliner in her own right, but we've been touring together. And she's told me so many stories of people jerking off in front of her at the Y or like some weird, they're her stories, but the one at the Y, I think should be okay with me saying like just some old guy at the Y and she went and reported it and they didn't believe her. And I could just like see with a new lens, yeah. like my lens had been changed 
ha- not that I ever was like, get over it, sweetheart. You know what I mean? I was never that way. I've always been like a sweetie in, in that regard because I, I, I'm an emotionally vulnerable person <laughs> often. Um, but she was just talking about like, and I, I could feel how fucking difficult that that was for her and how traumatic it was for her. So when I hear all the like, what's the big deal stuff? I'm like, I'm not hearing a lot of emotional intelligence. What it, what I, I, I was uh, to tell my own story. This was like a week ago. I was over by the Vista theater and there's a lot of traffic there. And there was a homeless person or, or a, a person having a psychotic episode. It was an unstable person walking through traffic. And, and he stopped right in front of my car and he just pulled up. He was wearing like a skirt. He pulled up his skirt and he was, and he started to take his uh, dick out and I was like really shocked. I guess I'm a man. I have a penis. I see pe- my own penis all the time. I was still like, I'm going to use, I felt very violated. I felt very unsafe. And that was just in my car. So I'm in a powerful place. I'm in a car. They're on foot. And I was just like, we need to like, I, I, I know people are like, oh, snowflake, snowflake. But I was like, yeah, maybe part of me is vulnerable like a snowflake, peop- and maybe that's okay. The people who yell, I, I have this line in the book, actually, that it is the, maybe that's human. the deepest of all political needs is to feel safe. Mm. It is the people yelling snowflake the loudest who are most upset that they can't feel safe about what they say interesting, and are so angry at the people who what they want is now to feel safe in what they can say. Mm. And one of the things that um, my, I had a colleague, she's out at the New York Times, Amanda Taub, and she'd written a really beautiful piece uh, for Vox it, a number of years ago, but it, you can find it on, on the Google machine, uh, <laughs> about the consent tax. And what she was saying was that the amount of work women had to do at all times to make sure they weren't in an unsafe position to make sure if they were in an unsafe position, they could get out to think like, was this person who could help them in their career offering to have a drink with them because he wanted to have sex with them or because he was interested in their work, the work they had to do to like deal with the trauma of like having like been in an unsafe position and they weren't able to get out. And then something terrible happened. Just like the constant endless effort of like, is it too late? Did the mix in this room change? Mm. Like what, like, am I too drunk? Am I wearing something that, and that what's happening there, but in a lot of spaces, is some of that effort, that work, that m- constant mental taxation that was falling on people who were less powerful mm. is now being spread out more. And yeah. I'm not saying it's great. It's not great that anybody has to do it. Yeah. But that the reaction to people now just having to do it a little bit. Yeah. Just be a little bit careful about what they say, about who they offend, when other people have been had to be it. careful about it all the time. They were running Photoshop and accept- they had so many programs yeah. open, and now we have and, stickies open. And Amanda's <laughs> point was that like that was this tremendous tax, like 30% of all energy was going to this like at mm. all times mm. in a lot of contexts. And now it's not that it's great when other people have to do it. Like in some way it be, would be much better if we were all able to handle everything perfectly and, you know, like give each other the benefit of the doubt. And if somebody missteps, just talk to them about it. But it is um, in my book, Jennifer Richardson, who's a Yale psychologist calls it the democratization of discomfort. Mm. Um, that this feeling of discomfort, that something might be wrong here and I have to do the work to figure out what it is and how not to step over it or step onto it is now being democratized to more people. And, all of a sudden, the, those of us, as you put it, who like don't have to have all the programs open, to have to have to, some stickies that are like, don't say the one word you can't yeah, say. Yeah. All are like, how dare you? Like, yeah. first of all, how dare you? Like, I am supposed to be able to say anything, right? Because free speech, right? Um, and 
you can see the power in those terms and in those values and those principles. But man, a lot of people never got to hide behind them in that way. It's never been free for everybody. It's somebody at the Four Seasons and they just started charging for ketchup. That's what it is. <laughs> it's like, but the ketchup was always free. <laughs> this is supposed to be the Four Seasons. That's what it is to me. <laughs> and you know what's interesting? I, I want to circle back to what I said. Of course, there are parts of me that are like a snowflake. Are you paying attention to your interior world? Why act so strong? Why put so much effort and so much adoration to like a John Wayne type if you weren't aware of the deep parts of you inside that are as vulnerable as – I'm going to say a baby bird because I don't like the word snowflake. There's there's so much in us. I'm shocked at how a song – can take me back to a place or or a, a look that somebody gives me at a, a lunch meeting or just a dismissal that a barista gives me. There's something in me. We, a lot of people call it our inner child. You call it the baby bird or the snowflake. Why are we so afraid of the part of us that we all share that is deeply, deeply vulnerable? Like you have a dream and it'll shake the way you interpret your entire day. A dream? Of course I'm a like it's like that's my new book proud snowflake. I'm just saying like I'm I'm proud of my strength and I'm aware of my vulnerability and if there's anything I had I had one of those fathers he'd cried a Bob Seger song but like it was hard to sort of get him I I have one of these fathers sort of hard to get him to be emotional in other ways but that doesn't mean it's not in there. Are we so like uh, facade obsessed that we're like well he's a big strong man? I know. Play against the wind. Somebody play against the wind. That's – I'm saying this in a beautiful way. That's vulnerability, and vulnerability is part of the human experience, and it's good to protect and shelter others yeah. instead of be like, hey, do what I'm doing and pretend and yell louder so you don't look like you have that part. Of course you fucking have it. Why, like why fury, else would you be yelling? The fu- I, I think that's so right, but, like, man, the fury of – it's a lot of work to even begin – to integrate the broken parts of yourself yeah. like a lot of work and i say that as somebody who's probably only begun right only begun like in like over like the last like couple of years to deal with some of the stuff that was like more fractured and if you're not used to those parts of yourself like if you've not really been thrown into that pit like inside for one reason or another like the anger you will feel at somebody for bringing that up and when you had had that down yeah like that's a lot and it's, it's not even an irrational form of anger like how dare you make me feel this way that's like right. this way feels really bad you're not wrong it feels bad that's right you're maybe a little bit wrong about who's really making you feel that way but it's not wrong that you it feels see it bad with uh, a great like kobe dying we all feel more mortal I, I i hit my head in the green room in nashville and it was just bleeding and i was holding it and you just remember that you're just a bag of blood and your head can bleed so easily and because of this like big sonic wave death that we all experience we're feeling more vulnerable and that's like a very challenging thing similarly when somebody else is dealing with their darkness and their weakness it mirrors it to us and and it it can be very frightening also i think there might be something at play where it's a luxury i can feel my father being like when i was 16 my father died and i took over the oil delivery business when i was 22 i started going to therapy you know what i'm saying like and also i'm a comedian and and I have the leisure to have conversations like this. Most people listening, I think, would be like, yeah, I'd love to take three hours and talk to Ezra Klein. I, I hope they're not thinking must be nice, but not everybody has that kind of time. And then they do have time to call me 
a libtard or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like we're all – I'd like to think we're all doing the best we can and I'm trying to have compassion for the people that might not know their inner snowflake and therefore what's available on their menu is to call me a snowflake. But this is one of the um, – I don't know. I think it's such a weird thing in politics that it has become just snowflake as like a whole concept – the idea that in politics, what people want ultimately isn't to be able to just feel safe, to say what they want to say, do what they want to do. It's so obvious, mm-hmm. right? And the people who are the first to yell snowflake are the most upset that you can't say Merry Christmas or something, even though you can say Merry Christmas, yeah. or the most upset about something that happened on a college campus. And I, I think like a deep problem um, in the way we relate to each other is that we can't see that everybody is just super afraid. Yeah. And not afraid in ways that they can um, come out with and say and identify. And so one of the things that I have found in politics, and I say this having had to work my way backwards to it, because I'm just intensely politically weird. Like I'm a policy reporter. I operate at the most sanitized cerebral like think tank reports and charts and graphs and appendices and like that's the stuff i'm known for and one of the things i've just like in the book deals with some of this but that i've had to just come back to is not only is that not most of our bedrock politics but oftentimes that is stuff we use to find a safe way to talk about bedrock politics i'll give an example of this Mm -hmm. that something i realized and it took me a long time was i was using the words i'm stressed when the feeling I was describing was I'm sad or scared mm-hmm. because I'm stressed was really safe. That's what my therapist says. Kids say I'm bored when they mean I'm depressed. Oh, that's interesting. And I adults do it too. They huh. go, I'm just bored. So stressed was like, everybody's like, oh, well, you should be stressed. Like you look how much you're doing and the business and the politics and the pieces and the, you're on TV and like, you can definitely be stressed. That is safe. And it was like it took a lot of time and it was like mindfulness and in some cases um, some of those mindfulness shortcuts you were talking about that like forced some reckoning with, oh, like that's not just stress. Yeah. Like something's really wrong here. And but politics has that a lot. Um, we I was saying this earlier in the immigration debate that it's like you end up in this argument about what's happening to, to wages and then you're like, well, even if I believe that we could just do a tax cut with the extra revenue from the new workers and like more than compensate – and that doesn't solve the argument because that was never actually the argument. Mm. That was a safe way to have an argument that there was not an like people did not feel safe actually having. Mm. And a lot of politics is you, you're like you're chasing something that's not really the thing you're chasing. Yeah, that's interesting. You can't have the conversation. It's like talking to. It's not easy. People don't even know what the conversation is. Yeah, it's like talking to a stoic parent. Yeah, <laughs> there, you have to have the subtitles on. I love you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm afraid. Yes. And we are all afraid. That That's another thing that psychedelics has enlightened for me, how, I don't want to just say lonely, but how isolating it can be to be in one of these meat puppets. Like, it's crazy. Like, watching, of course, so I've been shitting on identity, and I'm like, it's stupid that you like the Red Sox, or it's stupid that you're a Republican or a Democrat or this or that. Okay, great. That it must be nice to be able to do that. Because it's very frightening, and the more identity we have, I, I think sometimes the less scared we are. Of course. I'm back at my joker point. Of course people have noticed this. If I'm belonging, if I know what my group is, if I know that tobacco is a cash crop, that those tax dollars help with this blah, 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 it's less frightening to just be like, I woke up 
as I always say, in a conundrum. This is a conundrum. <laughs> and it's very scary. Yeah. And it's lonely. It's one of those ones, right? Tobacco is a cash crop is just a classic. That had nothing to do with anything in that conversation. <laughs> that was not his real argument. It had nothing to do with your argument. Dude. Like tobacco is a cash crop. Like nobody gives like marijuana is a cash crop. And I bet you at that moment he that guy was no. not like working for the legalization of marijuana, right. even though it can make people a lot of money. That's right. Like that's like that's the stuff where it's like you're hearing something. And it's so hard because one of like my conflicts in all this is like as a journalist, like one of my values is to be generous, like try to take arguments in their best way. And sometimes you're doing that and you realize like that's great, but you've just invented a fake argument. <laughs> right. Right. I, wa- I-, I wrote down mom and dad. I was just like at a certain point, I can certainly say this for sports. It's just daddy. You know what I mean? Like if I like if I was really into the Red Sox, I see that as a way for me to build a bridge to my father. You know what I'm saying? And politics, I feel like, is a lot. Like when I was talking to Heath, we were so young. I was like, so much of this yeah. is just mommy and daddy. I'm not saying he was wrong, and I'm not saying he's dumb. I'm saying I do the same thing. It's lo- it, and this is I hate the word love has just been so ruined, but it is love. You're looking for some love, some involvement, some connection, a place to stand. And then over in the spiritual place, we're going, there's nowhere to stand. And it's like, well, geez, I don't know if I can do that because <laughs> this is already a lot. What, so what do you believe now? Atheist? Jewish atheist? <laughs> no, I'm a agnostic. Like I'm a pretty committed agnostic. Okay. I believe things are much weirder than I we I only get that because I thought I, I saw your interview with Malcolm Gladwell and you sort of teased that maybe if you weren't Jewish, you would be an atheist. No, I am. Um, Malcolm I'm, Gladwell, I'm, by the way, talks like Greg the Egg on Succession. <laughs> Um, one of the things like it's very similar i can't do you, you saw my um podcast or the 92 92 watt? Watt. oh yeah that was yeah. a lot of fun yeah, yeah, yeah. he's great he's uh, the coolest you did great with i mean it was really fun watching you yeah he talk. was a lot of fun um no i'm a very deep believer that whatever like the quote-unquote capital t truth is is so much fucking weirder than our pea brains can understand that's why i laugh i'm up in oakland these days so i'm, I'm in the silicon valley world sometimes and everybody likes talking about, are we in a computer simulation? And like crude monotheism was like, what if God is me, but bigger? Dude, you're and making And then the great computer point. simulation argument is like, a, like an even narrower version. Like, what if God is like me, a software engineer, but, but bigger? bigger? Yeah. And just the idea that it is going to be that simple is BJ so M- silly BJ Novak made the same point and it blew my mind. I was like, we've done it. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Of course, we're just going, I create, God creates like I create. This is, saying this is a simulation is such a return to just like, oh, so there's just like something in charge of all of this that just wound it all up and made it all for his purposes. We're back at Genesis, baby. (laughs) So I've been reading, um, and you should have this guy on, Sean Carroll's book, Something Deeply Hidden, which is a book about quantum physics. And Sean is like, he's like a, he's a Caltech like physicist he's like the real he's the real deal please put us in touch um and but one of the things about his book that i just didn't quite one it's just a mind-blowing book and i like i understand what nobody understands about quantum physics way better than i did before which is great Uh but the big point of his book is that these equations seem to work they predict things to an incredible level of accuracy and if you take them seriously what they mean is the world is splitting into uncountable number of parallel universes at all times and like his argument is just like take the math seriously. 
nobody wants to do this, but there's just like the whole reason we get into these weird like, is there an observer effect on like what I look at and then it collapses into from like a wave to a particle? Yeah. And it's like, no. Heisenberg. No. What there is is not that there's an observer effect. What it is is that you are simply in the world where this one probability came true. Hmm. And all the others are in the world where the other probability came true. Fucking crazy. And I'm probably getting this wrong too, but his big thing basically is that we imagine it that like we're these classical physics beings looking at quantum things, but no, we're also quantum. Dude, I was just going to say – And it just like runs you through. And so you just have to believe something if you really – Either we don't know what the hell is going on, which is totally plausible, but if you just take the most straightforward interpretation of the math right now, what we're seeing is going on is something so crazy we simply refuse to believe it. And so a lot of his book is about the way that this was so weird that in the scientific profession, it just became a little déclassé to try to figure it out. Yeah. It like what where it was taking people was so completely insane that there was this kind of internal professional argument and people decided that and let's just figure out how to use quantum physics, not try to like keep it's like, like poking at why stress. it works. It's like in- meditating yeah. for stress instead of meditating for a while. And I don't, I'm sure I'm butchering this in certain important ways. Um, but uh, but Sean, who's got a great podcast also called Mindscape, and Edit people would like this. Yeah. Uh, but it's it just I find it comforting. Mm-hmm. There is some way I find it comforting to just say it's just weirder than that. I love that something on un- something unknown is do- doing something we know not what is is a is a helpful one. I love what you just said because for me, one of the things that's been missing from science, as it was explained to me, I just mean in school. <laughs> I didn't go to MIT. I'm just saying like basic bitch science never seemed to address that the observer was part of the observed universe. It was like you are not like religion makes the same mistake. You are over here. You are Pac-Man going through the board. Pac-Man is made of the same pixels as the ghosts and the pellets and the maze. You know what I'm saying? You like I needed, and this is what quantum physics has done for me in in my very cursory study. It's helped me go like, nope, there's geniuses that are for decades have been way ahead of you, of course, that are going, we are part of the thing that we are looking at. So it is looking at itself, and it, like the Heisenberg thing you were saying, is affecting what we're seeing, and it is part of what we were seeing. I had this great. Why does the knife cut itself? I had this great experience reading the book where, so I had learned some like very basic quantum physics in school too, but I didn't understand anything. Um, and then, you know, if you read a lot of the kinds of spirituality books that you read, and I've certainly read a number of, you like come across a lot of like woo-woo quantum physics in them. It's like a constant talk about the wave particle thing. But I had absorbed enough of the scientific like profession's pushback on this. It's like, stop misusing it. It doesn't mean that. And it's like, oh, okay, all that stuff is wrong. And then I read Sean's book. It's like, oh, like that stuff may be wrong, but they actually don't know what's right. It's not wrong in the sense that they have a different answer. Some right. may be misstating the equation, but they actually don't know. They don't want it used, like a lot of scientists don't want it used in this way that feels culturally um soft bias. but they it's not because they've got some better idea <laughs> right it's because they don't know no i know and now some people are like trying to wrap this into a spiritual thing that they also don't know but i just sort of liked that that i i don't know i find some comfort in the idea that it's all just going to be stranger absolutely and the scientists that i've been drawn to are always the ones that go like no the answer is we don't know yeah that doesn't mean you can use the equation and i'm sure i've done this we can find audio of that doesn't mean you can use the uh, uh, equation to prove what you'd like to believe but we need to 
we're back to what we were saying about faith and doubt being these opposites and science and not knowing are not opposites. Not knowing is a part of science. It's it's a it's a yeah. blank. And I'll actually tell you, I'll take this back even to identity, which is something that I think people underrate is that identities are based on values too. They're not just based on we we talk about like identity politics, like the only things that could be an identity are race or religion or party or something like that. But like just as sports can be an identity, just as religion can be an identity. Also like I'm fair minded, I'm generous and I'm the identity I like the most and it's why I like the journalistic identity for myself is that curious is just a great identity. Yeah. You can do a lot with curious. Like yeah. curious with like a little bit of compassion in it. Like that can I think take you pretty far and really working to like convince yourself of that about yourself. So that like that's an identity you don't want cons- violated. Yeah. Is I think really healthy. Like something I push people on in the book is like trying to trying to a lot of people are trying to build your identities for you, often in very unhealthy ways. Like being in, like knowing that identity is a powerful psychological substrate that you're using all the time, recognizing that people are manipulating it and threatening some and pushing others, and then asking yourself, like, well, what do I want my core identities to be, and how can I strengthen them, and what would it mean to violate them? And like for me, I think a lot about the identity of just like. I mean, for me, being a journalist is fundamentally, it's curiosity. Like, you want to understand the way the world works, and that means right. you have to go ask people questions. Right. And then, like, maybe tell other people what you found. But, like, that's, it's that, it's that hard and that easy. It sounds very similar to patience and humility, actually. Curiosity and compassion. It's, it's not exactly the same, obviously. It's not uh, synonymous, but it's similar to that openness and that willingness. Uh, so, we're, we've, we've overlapped a lot, and I really enjoy that. I love what you just said. Uh, we talked a lot about a lot of stuff. Uh, we have two last questions. I know we've gone a little bit over time. I don't know what you're doing. I have no idea what time it is. Me neither. What is time, Ezra? (laughs) We don't know among other things. Yeah, I know. Isn't that fun? (laughs) I always like the one when we watch how particles and electrons behave, we're just like, yeah, the, the further in we go, the more we're like nothing is guaranteed like nothing is obeying any law if we go as far down as we can we're just like yeah it's just it's just pop rocks (laughs) it's just sparkling pop rocks um one is has anything happened to you that you cannot explain this is a catch-all question for aliens and ghosts and weird serendipities and you don't have to have an answer i just would hate myself to not ask i don't have I can't think of a ton of direct stuff to me. I can't think of a ton of direct stuff to me that feels inexplicable around me. There have been a lot of stories like that. Like shit happens to my mom all the time that you can't explain, but to maybe give a bigger answer to this, it seems completely impossible that I'm in the position I'm in. Like (laughs) when I think about that for two seconds, that what are the chances that you like whatever, for whatever value of you, you have, are born then like not just born but you're a human being not just like a human being but you live in america like the richest country in the world Mm -hmm. not just you live in america but like you like you're born into like the upper middle class in america not just that but like you come to like i've had a very successful career in journal it just doesn't seem plausible yeah no. like i can't explain any of that that doesn't make any sense i didn't deserve that i didn't do something for it i'm not even sure i (laughs) told I'm not even trying to totally buy it. The only time I sort of, the only time I sort of believe the simulation stuff is it does sometimes feel like maybe like Super Me put like a quarter in, maybe Super Me put a quarter in the arcade and like that's the game we're playing. It just it just seems unlikely. <laughs> Sorry for coughing through that whole fun thing. Um, 
I totally hear what you're saying. I don't care if I believe this literally. It is a fun thought experiment when I'm like, we're doing all of them. That's why I like uh, the Hindus and the reincarnations. And when you look at reincarnation, really, it's all of it. it all of your lives are just happening uh, simultaneously. But anyway, the idea that this time you're doing this, but you're really just doing all of them, but because it's one thing, I, I sort of enjoy that. Yeah. Why wouldn't you be doing this? Because you've done just the other the, ones. The, the odds of it are just so unbelievably stacked against it. Yeah. And but that, I, you can also zoom it out too and just be like that anything is happening, that there's an yeah, earth yeah, happening. Yeah, no, totally. I know. So <laughs> it just it doesn't it doesn't leave you anywhere. It just I feel like it is so much easier to believe in ghosts than to believe in like my good fortune. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh two more questions. Is Bernard gonna win? <laughs> oh, Bernie Sanders. Um when will this come out so I know what I'm talking for? Well, I don't know. If you have a preference, we can put it out earlier. No, no, no. It's just like we'll know more in a couple weeks when we get through some more primaries. But so if it's like three months from now and I'm like, well, he's a front runner, but by then he's. Well, today, today is February. We're the day after the Iowa caucus. So I think it's a fourth, but I could be wrong. February 4th. So this is Um, just what it is right now. I think that he is the Democratic front runner. And I think that if he wins the nomination, I would put him a slight favorite to win. Mm-hmm. The general, but I mean, you can look at polling. It's only a slight favorite. Oh, wow. But it's not out of the question. Oh, absolutely not. You'd be crazy to think it's out of the question. Fun. I like him. Look at his jackets. His dusty jackets. <laughs> He's flapping around. 1% of the 1%. <laughs> Get that guy over here. And I'm going to pay a lot of taxes if he wins. Yeah. <laughs> so this, I feel this like isn't it, even yeah, it's not, just me hoping There's all this talk about helps people um, uh, on the left about, like, why do people vote against their self-interest? And I think it's, like, important to realize, like, people vote against their self-interest all the time, including a lot of people. Like, Bernie Sanders is campaigning against his own economic self-interest. Like, he'll pay a lot of taxes if he wins, too. Yeah. Like, people vote based on who they want to be in the world and, like, what they want their vote to say about them and the what kind I, of world they want to see. Here's something weird that I've never said uh but what I don't understand, so rich people don't want to pay as much taxes, but what ha- what I don't get is that you still get to keep all the money you already have. I you just tax new some, income. So if you Well, have, it depends on the taxes we're talking about. Like oh, really? Warren or Bernie's wealth tax would tax a lot of existing Oh, wealth. is that right? Oh, huge. Like, yeah, it would like wipe out a lot of existing wealth for rich people. Oh, wow. Yeah, for very rich people. But yes, it's... When we're talking about like new marginal tax rates on There's income, your YouTube clip. Holmes gets schooled on e- economics. Klein destroys yes. Holmes on tax rates. <laughs> um, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> but you're talking about like hyper, 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 hyper rich. Yeah. So the wealth taxes we're talking about are the very rich. Um, and then the other – but yeah, income taxes is future income. Also, one of the things that goes on in the tax debate a lot, and you see this with a lot of the like Elizabeth Warren burn billionaire fights, is that – Oftentimes, what rich people object to most in the tax debate is not like the idea that they'll pay more, more taxes, but the idea that they don't deserve what the money they got. Uh, that like at a certain point, money is a way you keep score, mm-hmm. and you're super rich and you're like winning the game. Right? You have a new high score. Like everybody comes to the pizza place knows you're the best. Right. And then somebody comes and says like, not only do you have to give up those points. But we should understand that it's bad that you have them in the first place. Yeah. And like then they go crazy. We're back in identity. Yeah, we're back in identity. Like being a billionaire, like part of that identity is like I did something amazing. And then Elizabeth Warren comes over and says, 
you're the problem. And you're like, how dare you? Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense to look at the other side and be like, if we're such a capitalist, capitalistic society, if you make billions of dollars, shouldn't you be king shit? Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean you won it, the game it's all as points it was explained on the, to you. It, at that level, it's all points on the board. There's a story I love about Steve Jobs. When he was at Ooh. Apple, when he came back at Apple for a long time, uh, he would only get paid a dollar a year. And long after he had turned Apple around, he's still making a dollar a year. And the Apple board is like, "You, we have to pay you. Like, you can't just keep making a dollar a year. Like, you've done an amazing job. Like, we want to pay you." So he said, "Eventually, fine." This is all in the the Isaacson biography. And he comes back to them with an ask that is huge. Like, big. They wanted to pay him, but they didn't want to pay him this much. Yeah. And the issue was like. When you look at that, and funny enough, there's almost exactly the same story about George Washington when he was like fighting for the British before we were a country. But it is very high status to be turning around Apple for a dollar, right? The savior who's there because he loves the company. And it's very high status to make more than all the other CEOs because you're the best CEO. Mm-hmm. What you don't want to be is a CEO making the median CEO income. Oh, interesting. Like – it's it's great to be sacrificial. It's great to be the very richest, but you don't just want to like money. The way the money gets paid is a recognition of what you're valued at a dollar. It's clear you're refusing the recognition at bazillions of dollars. It's clear that we recognize you're the best. Right. But just like you're making the CEO ways just means you're another CEO. He wanted to be the best either in humility or in yes. glory. Did they give it to him? Yeah, he made a shit ton of money. I'm wondering why I have all these thoughts about all the huge corporations and again you have to remember who you're talking to just kind of a a comedian but um there's my identity again but um why not just with a company like apple that's caught some flack for you know shenzhen i always get the town wrong china Mm -hmm. and and the way that the products are made why not why doesn't any ceo just have the lsd if not jobs who revelation of just like i'm going to be the greatest company in the world i'm going to change the way that that companies are run like if amazon was just like everybody like there's there's companies that do this just not huge companies that are like guess what uh there's daycare and everybody gets health insurance and we don't overwork you and you make a great salary and why doesn't jobs take the the glory pay and then either pay it forward in the company or pay it forward in the country or pay it forward globally um one he's dead just just so we're what? on the same page i know I, I hate to break this you just spoiled that I biography know. for me uh <laughs> steve fassbender wait fassbender is dead um without like there is a margin on which they can do that and then a margin on which the both like the increase in cost but also like one of the reasons a lot of them are in china is supply chain stuff there are it is a bad thing about capitalism that there are often like good business reasons to do bad things. Yeah, to I watch Shark people Tank. And, yeah, so, <laughs> um, so there you go. Like that, whether or not it's the right answer, and like you know, we just don't I, have any mythic figures that are just like, yeah, I know I could make the shareholders. We more have money. a couple of people who do that. I mean, the Doctor Bronner's people do that, and like yes. there, there, there are folks out there who do. But I tried for to get Doctor Bronner's to be a sponsor, and they were like, we don't do that. Yeah. We give our money away, and then people seem to know about our product. And they were like, "We love your podcast. Uh, <laughs> we'll send you some soap." But uh, yeah, we don't advertise like that. And I was like, "Jesus Christ, you guys are I, yeah, cool. they're they're real serious yeah. about it." So, um, 
but to be like the biggest, there's you know market incentives and other incentives to squeeze. And and isn't it easy that, for someone to go just keep doing it in sort of the gray way and use your money for good? I'm sure somebody could just explain that to you, right? And like we're doing so much good because on the other side, our products are cheaper, and because our products are cheaper, more people can have them, and the products do. We're very good at rationalizing. Yeah, we are. I feel like I just turned. I'm just kidding. Uh, what fun! Here's the last question. Yes. Can you think of the time in your life that you laughed the hardest? Oh, it's definitely on psychedelics. <laughs> the spiders did no, a little no bit of for you. Which one? I don't remember. I mean, probably and like it's just a different like I know form of. I I actually will say one. Um, I remember, and this was at a time in my life when I was very stressed. Um, Sad. I want to I want to be clear that I've not done a ton of this stuff, but I've had a couple experiences. But um, there's a time in my life I was very stressed and. I was having a stressful trip mm. and I remember just like, I was like looking up, like I was like, like laying down in a room and looking up at the ceiling and like the house around me. And all of a sudden the whole thing just felt completely ridiculous. And I just couldn't stop like tears running down my face, laughing at how just like silly it all was right. Yeah. All the status, like, the parts of his house were just like a monument to how well somebody was doing. Like Mm. the whole thing Mm. just seemed unbelievably ridiculous. It was like this like whole, like this like thing in my chest cracked open in a really nice way. You got the joke. Yeah. Like you got the joke. Um, I've told the story a million, but I was on mushrooms and my friends were on mushrooms, but it hadn't kicked in on them. This was here at this house. And they were talking about where to buy an Amazon Alexa. And I was on a big beanbag chair that we used to have wearing an adult onesie that I still have. And what, I, what, is it an animal onesie? It does. It's not. I mean, I like to think of it as a big teddy bear because it's brown, but it doesn't have like Got affectations. It, okay. I was in paradise laughing, not at them, but at everything. Just like here we are, saturated in the mystery, floating in space, floating in infinity, yeah. and we've become self-aware. So something has become activated yes and we are part of that and you guys are on the same magic substance i'm on it hasn't worked for you because my theory was they smoke too much pot and i was like you're talking about where to buy an amazon alexa and i could not stop laughing similar also I think, to your experience amazon is the answer to that question dude <laughs> it's also just funny if you're sober where do you buy a Walmart gift card. Yes. The answer is Amazon. Walmart. <laughs> what color is an orange? <laughs> Ezra, we're going to listen to the Ezra Klein show. It's a Vox podcast. Vox is a wonderful vodka that covers uh, news. No laugh. And you have a new book called Why We're Polarized. Do you get a lot of vodka Vox jokes? No. Is there a vo- uh, I like that, but I, it took me a moment. Is there oh, a vodka named Vox? It definitely sounds like there will be. Uh, there's a Spanish semi-fascist party named Vox. Oh, really? Yeah. What if I knew that? <laughs> I, I hide like a flag. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> what a delightful conversation. Enlightening and illuminating. And I enjoyed it. Was it was a pleasure to be here and to, to be in a podcast the, I've admired so much for so long. What was so. the other one that got you to do a podcast? Um, I uh, like the Tim Ferriss show a lot. The which one? Tim Ferriss. Yeah, Tim is great. So early on as a podcaster, I was much more biographical and confessional the way I interviewed because yeah. I was like pulling out of YouTube oh, guys. Oh, I remember. How did I hear this? You uh, said it publicly maybe. I probably said it publicly. And then over yeah. time, I realized that that wasn't actually my podcasting style, but yeah. 
it was transporting some of that actually into the politics realm that was the basis for the work yeah. I do now. And now it's changed in its own ways. But at the beginning, when you're always like kind of mimicking things you love, I was yeah, you were, definitely pulling a little bit. From I you was guys. the button mashing time of your podcast. <laughs> and now you're doing the combos. Good for you. All right. Would you say keep it crispy? It's how we end. Keep it crispy. You keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Oh, wait. Shit. I forgot. Are we still rolling? Yeah. I forgot to give you your gift. Oh, great. CBD, you want some? Uh, sure. That's Charles uh, Webb. Is this like a sponsor or what's going on? It is a sponsor, and they gave me a bunch of free stuff, and I'm giving it to guests. Amazing. This is the mint chocolate uh, original formula, which is what I like. And is this also... like actually a chocolate, or is it a... It tastes like chocolate. It's Got oil. It. It's an you oil. You just put it right in your mouth. And these are gummies that can help you sleep. Oh, amazing. They make gummies. I found I tried CBD to sleep once, and it kept me up. Am I talking... Should I be talking to the mic, or are we... You can talk... Yeah, this, right. is, this is part of the show. Okay. Because I like getting the word out, because I love this company. And it's cwhemp.com slash weird. Keep it crispy. 14 gets you 14... 40% off. Wow. For, for the month of February. Uh, but that's for you for free. I feel like I'm on double there. Thanks to our friends at, at Charlotte's Web. Johnny, <laughs> take us away. Now now say keep it crispy again. Keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs>